I am a knight. Welcome, everybody. We are excited Welcome. to have you here. <laughs> we got another episode for you. We have been special guest after special guest, club banger after club banger, and we're only going to continue <laughs> that this week. Sean and Aziz from History of West Rose. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. We're on Zoom. We're not in person. Sean's in Denver. Sean used to be at the History of Westeros house, the big house in Atlanta. Spent a lot of time with each other there. Made a lot of podcasts. We're revisiting that at the very end of our reading order. We're, uh, we only have one, one chapter left after this. This is the big one. And we just did the following chapter to this chapter. We're doing The Queen's Hand, which is Barristan's last chapter in A Dance, a Dance with Dragons. And we just did Barristan 1. Uh, Hannah and I guessed it on your podcast. Like, what was it, two months ago? Yeah, not too long ago. Yeah, that, yeah, like, uh, not even two months, I think close to two months. Yeah, so we've really been on the Barristan grind together yeah. for the last couple of weeks. So, <laughs> that's right. So see that episode for all the <laughs> things we might miss to, in today's discussion. Yeah, digging even farther in. We know this I dude just well. Read the chapter, by the way, I, you know, my role on History of Westeros was unsullied, and I have slowly but surely sullied myself <laughs> and just recently you know read this the the end of the book i started reading the winds of winter chapters but it's very fresh on my mind especially in context of the whole thing and i might also have some maybe some rookie questions some stuff that everyone else has been pouring over for years that i've just now thought of but uh, this is the perfect place to figure that out because yeah. we've yeah. read a lot of those things probably and so you don't even have to google it i'm we sure might take a few things it. for granted you'll, you'll bring up you know yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for sure well, what did you think about the chapter, Sean? I liked it. I mean, I definitely liked it. It was uh, several things about the last few chapters were surprising to me from coming from, you know, the the skewed perspective of the show when John died. I was like, wait, you know, just the nature of the the, the physical presentation of the book, because all the appendices in the back, all the, you know, it mm. looked like there were still like 100 pages to go. <laughs> and I funny. thought John dying was like the final moment. Yeah. And so when he dies, like in like the final, like two paragraphs of that, I was like, holy crap, it's happening right now. Like, <laughs> book? like I don't know. I'm, I don't want to be too negative, but maybe in some ways the Barrison chapter was like a little anticlimactic. Like. Mm. Oh, what what else can happen? And his character is also a little bit more straightforward. And mm-hmm. he's currently in a situation that's a little bit more straightforward, right? He doesn't have, I don't know, maybe there is some moral dilemma. Like maybe the idea of going to war might be a moral dilemma to some people. But to him, it's like, well, of course, that's what we're doing. It's what I'm good at, it's too. Relieved. Let's just do it. You know, he's very honest yeah. and straightforward and, and uh, he sees what needs to be done and he's trying to do it. So... In certain ways, it doesn't have a lot of the mystery or intrigue or potential speculation that some of the other chapters have. But it is still interesting to get his perspective. It is interesting. He's one of the few non-gray characters in the series. Um, Also, getting ready for this, reading back over it, thinking about it, I, I... this chapter is as much about Quentin as it is about yep. Harrison. It's as much mm-hmm. about a lot of other things, even though it's his POV. Anyway, that's my like <laughs> off the cuff initial <laughs> take. <laughs> I think that totally makes sense, though, because with John, we've kind of reached the climax of his storyline a couple chapters ago. And now the way that this book ends is kind of on the buildup still to this battle that we've been talking about for so long. And we, it's almost like a cliffhanger as we wait for all hell to finally break loose. As we've been, I feel like we've just been building and building and building and building for 
chapters Almost and like episodes and years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <Bodies. So. laughs> Unexpected. We, we expected rocks, but instead they're infected corpses. Okay. <laughs> to add to what you were saying, Sean, it's true that he's one of the most straightforward POVs. Probably not the most straightforward when you've got guys like Victorian and Ariel Hota around, <laughs> but it's close. But unlike those two, Barristan knows a lot of things casually that we would love to know that have nothing to do with what he's dealing with. Like, mm-hmm. just his memories. Like, he was around for all this Rhaegar and Ares stuff, and, like, he killed Melis the monster. Just, like, mm-hmm. if he could just think about those. If his thoughts could just wander a little more. If he could be like Cersei, where his her thoughts just go all over. Like, she's like, mmm, donuts, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and starts thinking about, like, sleeping with... My favorite example is when... Kyburn comes up, he's like, there's a thing happening, uh, blah, 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 on Greenstone. She's like, hmm, Greenstone, that's where I first had sex with Jamie, uh, blah, 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 this one time, you know? And he's like, oh, but he's giving her political news, but she's just like, hmm, Greenstone. <laughs> and I, I want Barristan to do that. I want him to be like, let me think about Summerhall for a minute. Like, I wasn't there, but let me think about it, you know? Because uh, yeah. he awesome. was alive during it, right? <laughs> just, it's just awesome anything. that you say that, uh, <laughs> One, in general, I agree that is something that we get from Barrison Chapters is reflection on history other than what's happening in that chapter. But something I specifically was thinking about, I, what I want a Barrison to think about, something I wonder if George will give us, I want to know his thoughts on Jamie. Because mm-hmm. we've seen now that Barristan A, had the thought in his mind to kill Robert. Right. He's he's thought that if he was there when Robert was presented with those dead children, that nothing could have stopped him from killing him. Right. Mm -hmm. Which would have made him a Kingslayer. Right. Uh, Maybe in his mind, Robert wasn't a real king. But then he retroactively thinks about uh, Ares. He thinks about maybe I should have let him die, you know, and letting someone die isn't exactly the same as killing them. But he's having that thought process. And now he's leading a coup against the king. So. What kind of judgment can he pass on Jamie? How open-minded will he be to reevaluating his opinion of Jamie? He hasn't, Jamie hasn't even crossed his mind one time. I wonder if he will. I want so bad for Martin to give us a little snippet of Barristan reevaluating his whole life, which he seems <laughs> to be doing a little bit, you know? He thinks about Jamie like very un- indirectly, which is like t- a tease of what you're saying because he has that moment. I actually don't remember if it's in this chapter or one of his other ones where he thinks about how good of a natural swordsman Tumco Lowe is, the one who's from the Basilisk. I think Isles. it's the very one. He's like, that guy's as good, good a natural swordsman as Jamie Lannister, yeah. but they go, it doesn't go any farther than that. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, what about personality? And like, I'm something like, what about, yeah. So you're totally right. That's a great like lead in. I think that, that Barry's really prejudiced against Jamie he is. because of the way that he looks. A big part of that. (laughs) The Kingslayer thing, uh, I I totally agree, Sean, that that dynamic is something that we could look at. And they they would look at if someone like Beefish was in the room to be like, hey, both of you aren't as cool as you think you are. Maybe then Barry would go, "Uh, there's a little bit something more here to this guy. But I just don't think that it helps that he looks that way. And he is arrogant, too. You know, even if there's some justification, which Jamie is too arrogant to feel the need to tell anyone about, you know, why he killed Ares. But he he is also even if he's earned some of his arrogance through his his skill with the sword, but still he is arrogant beyond other people who are skilled with the sword. So I could yeah, see like, Barrison's disposition against him. But for example, Megor the Cruel was just found dead on the throne, and it's an open question what happened there. It may have been his own Kingsguard that killed him, and they may have just been like, well. 
unlike Jamie Lannister, we're not going to take credit for this because it's mm-hmm. it's it's bad. Like we, it might be the right thing to do, but we don't need to take credit for it because it's bad for the institution of the Kingsguard. So like we can kind of have our cake and eat it too if we just kill him and then like I don't know who did mm-hmm. it, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and it's and to back up more on what you're saying before, Sean, it's true. Like there's no in this chapter. I don't think. I, I, I don't think he has any important memories, but like Mm -mm. it's either one or two chapters ago, he's thinking about the tournament of Harrenhal and Ashara Dane. And you're like, Ooh, give us more of that. You know, so Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I was coming from. But yeah, this one, there's just too much else going on for memory. He's got no time for memories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is all aesthetic. It felt like, it felt like the night of the seven kingdoms of a dance with dragons, that episode of a dance with dragons. I I love the, the, the romance in him walking back in from being at the, at the parapets of, the top of this kingdom being in complete control of everything. And I'm getting a little bit twisted because I know that we just talked about Barry one. So he's used less of that power. And so it's even more romantic when you think he's used less of that power at this time. So he's walking in and his boots are making, they're soiling the floor like any other person's boots would soil the floor. I mean, he's the, the chief human in command at the time. He's got a wet cape and wet boots and he's walking in. And Sean, I think what you said about this feeling like maybe I don't know if you said that there was less substance or something. I forget how you put it exactly, but less of it, intrigue. I don't want to say less substance, go. but less. There's less. I don't know. Reading between the it was lines more straightforward. Or way less evaluating confusing. his morality or or speculating on where it might go. It's, yeah, I feel like there's less of that type of quote unquote substance. It was more of the of a dump of the things that you like and the things that you uh, I don't know feel like or define these people. And you're, I feel like I was waiting for him to feel a lot of the emotions he was feeling in this chapter. And uh, there were moments like when he was talking about what they were going to do with the plan, the Yunkai plan. If things did go south for them. And uh, um, they would eventually end up leading an attack on Yunkai outside of the Gates of Marine where the I was sitting outside in the sunlight and it was warm and I still had a chill go over my body and I still had the hairs raise up on my arm. Mm-hmm. I was yeah, like, when he said fire and blood. Exactly. He and said fire and blood. He would, he would he's like, he's shatter it. Fire and blood softly. Softly, yes, said yeah. twice. I was like, "Wow, <laughs> strong goes that." That would actually taste better than liver and onions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah give it a little scorching first. <laughs> the simple part of my brain, the, the non-zoomed out part, goes, "Oh, he's gonna die now because of that." In this battle, because we're getting a lot of these feelings and moments, like before the White Walkers attack, for example. Where, before or, he can tell us too much. Before he can right. tell us too much or, or give us anything else because it's sort of like we've got the definitive sort of dump of these emotions that we like. And he's – like in the last chapter when he was uh, taking uh, his dar, he – it said Barristan the Bold move forward. Barristan Bold, the Bold charged forward. And I've been waiting for that moment ever since I've known he was a character. And we're getting a little bit more than that. And uh, it was like a pipe dream of someone that was a Barristan fanboy in a Game of Thrones when she learned about his character that he would one day – be in the position of complete power of a kingdom, a far east one at that with pyramids <laughs> and, and dragons flying around and uh, fighting pits filled with sheep for those dragons. Like all the texture is a really creative way to give us that thing that George knew that we – it's like he knew that what we would think about Barry, he guessed how we would romanticize him a long time ago and really set us up to be paid off in this strange way. And I think that a lot of that romance is part of the uh, – the confusion I have, or, or rather not really confusion, just being unsure about how I feel about what Barry is doing 
because part of me wants to support it. He sounds very heroic when he says he's going to shatter the peace because we know what kind of people are outside of the gates and we know what they're up to. Tyrion's out there, plus we've been around him with Danny this whole time. And plus we can just make an educated guess based on how things are in Slaver's Bay. But at the same time, just because it's Barry and just because it seems heroic and just because we don't really like those people, peace, isn't that better? Yeah, it is better. And he's like, that's what he 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 thinks is better. But of course, you know, there has to be terms and he has to at least uphold the basics of what he thinks Daenerys wants. Um, that's the trick for him is he's trying to do what he thinks she would do. But she's this like creative, progressive visionary. And it's kind of hard to follow in those footsteps. So really, he's just trying to hold things in place till she gets back without delay any big decisions. But don't let everything fall apart either. And this is where the very, there is some history in this chapter. He thinks about other Kingsguard that have been in this position. Um, there have been at least, I think three other Kingsguard who were hands uh, of the King and they all went poorly um, for various reasons, but not it's, I mean, it's just not a job there prepared for like Barristan thinks about what his life has been you know like he just goes into this long uh accurate and very interesting description last chapter about the difference between well not just last chapter but throughout his pov the difference between a bodyguard a king's guard and a gladiator or something else where they're just you got to constantly be alert you're thinking all the time so it's not like during throughout all that, when is he learning how to play politics? He's, he's not, right? <laughs> you know, he never did. And he didn't really exactly have uh, a lot of, um, well, it, it wasn't really what he was built for in the first place. Like he says in this chapter, now this is what I was built for, war, I understand. That moment was so cool in this chapter. Yeah. To be fair yeah. though, Aziz, he does, he may not have the time to focus on politics that uh, a politician would have or that most other people will have. However, unlike most other warriors he's been adjacent to it for a long time right That's true. so yeah. he's better than average you know for sure maybe not even good like even the people who are specifically politicians they aren't good either right <laughs> but he's better than average and uh and also it's not it's not like he doesn't want peace he just doesn't quite have that option right now like he may right. be able to get peace if he makes a lot of sacrifices but again, he's trying to follow what Danny wants, and she's prioritizing freedom over peace, right? Which right. is also pretty noble. Um, and uh, he also, there's other concerns like the lives of individuals. But again, it's a little easier for this warrior to decide to go to war, right? Than it is to negotiate yeah, for peace. To, it. to not account for the many people that will die, children included, not just these hostages mm. that he's worried about at this moment. Uh, so it that's even reflected a little farther. Think about the council he put together. All warriors. All warriors. Every single yeah. one is just, yeah, we want to fight. You know, now maybe this is the time for that. Maybe when war is pending, you should have a council of all warriors. But it's worth noting, it doesn't even go through his mind. Maybe I should have someone worried about the economy and someone mm. worried about the, the health and the food. Uh, I don't have time for that right now. It doesn't even cross his mind, as far as we know. He just gets all the warriors together and tells them, let's get ready for war. So for better or worse, that's uh, that's his it makes sense you know that even if he has some political uh, insights that he's still going to steer toward battle especially when 
he's surrounded, you know, it all makes sense, even if it is questionable, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think about his dar. So in the chapter, like the Green Grace is talking about how he needs to reinstate his dar and kind of allow other folks to come into the conversation. That'll bring peace, da da da. But kind of to your point, he's kind of inherited this mess that I don't think there's a real way to navigate out of it. And I think that war is basically inevitable. And I think that if anybody is going to have that expertise, it's going to be him. But I don't see how you necessarily at this point in the game or even over the course of the last since Daenerys left, I don't know how you navigate out of some sort of major conflict. And I don't think that there are really any other options at this point other than to fight yeah, that's yeah. another thing is that maybe he could find some way to get peace right now, but then there will just be war later on with them in a worse position, I, yeah, mean, I there, think, you know. And that's just the bottom line. There is no peace with slavers. There's no compromise with slavers because the half, like, compromising with slavery is some slavery. Like, no, yeah, that's right. not a, like, no, there's no, there's none or there's, or there's war. what they want. Right, so there, there is no compromise. Like Danny wasn't handling this situation. Like Barrison's like trying to do what Danny was wants to do, but she wasn't handling this well either. Yeah, because she didn't come to terms with that. Like that's the the bottom line here. There is no agreement to be made with these people. None. There is no agreement. There is destroying them or dominating them or whatever. They're not gonna agree. They're not gonna abide by any agreement. Even if even if you could get them to agree with it, aside from the slavery, even there's also the issue of the dragons, right? Like, yeah, yeah. like I wonder, like it's it seems just outside the realm of possibilities. But what if they said we'll let all the slaves go if you kill the dragons? Ooh. Would Danny agree to that? Would Barristan agree Hell to that? No, no yeah, way. They'd be, no. they'd be lying. Yeah, that would be yeah. a lie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Plus, they would be lying. Yeah, I don't know if they would. Yeah. It, what if you replace their economy? Do they just really like having subservient humans around them and feeling cool and wearing slippers instead of uh, shoes with tread that you can actually do stuff with? And putting oils on themselves and perfumes way more than they actually need to, or is it just about the economy that comes with it? It'd be it's interesting both. to know what the middle class feel because we like to, like so much in in a Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire. We don't get the, the perspective of, of people outside the nobility. Like that's one of the great dichotomies of Ares and Robert that comes up here. Is really interesting. Is that yeah, Ares was horrible, but Robert was arguably worse in the big picture because Ares's horribleness was pretty much just inflicted Localized. on the nobility. It was really bad, but it was like he wasn't burning. Peasants. It was who he, he touched. Too. Yeah. Robert just led the kingdom poorly and let yeah, bad Robert things happen. Yeah, Robert the whole kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Ares just, I mean, Ares arguably did too because he threw it into civil war, but mm -hmm. like, you know, you could, so maybe they're just both really terrible in different ways. Like, I'm not trying to re rehabilitate Ares's image here, obviously, <laughs> but. <laughs> Wait, are you supporting the mad king? <laughs> but <laughs> on it our podcast? Be better, it might also be worse, I guess, for Robert because he maybe should have known better. I, I don't know if that's fair or true, but Ares yeah. has been in this ivory tower his whole life, and he's Targaryen who can go insane. It, like, you can, uh, yeah. you can see Robert's these reasons. Robert's not mad. Right, like. you can see reasons why Ares <laughs> may have done these negative bad things, but Robert should have had, you know, he should have had a better perspective of a little more removed from the that elite position of power, and he wasn't even really ambitious. He was just irresponsible and inconsiderate. And that's one thing if you're 
just a, a bad dad or a bad business owner. But when you're Robert, a king, you can't be inconsiderate and irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, not like that. What do you guys think the middle class marine actually looks like? And what do you think that they're thinking right now about this going on? I, I picture what we see in in the show Rome, where like because we do get a, pic, a, a picture of middle class Romans, and they still had slaves, but only like one or two, whereas these rich folk have like a Army legion seven. of yeah. slaves. Yeah, like for every, like you said, like that's the the like you're they're not even putting the, their own food in their mouth. Like the, they're Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's yeah. absurd like so that's what they're protecting like so the comparison is like i don't know like what do the middle class really care about upholding that they might because they might have they're so used to it the propaganda they might feel like i don't know some version of miranese slavers bay trickle down economics they might feel like it's better for them too like that argument that his dar makes in the show like well without slavery we wouldn't have great things like <laughs> who's someone's got to dig the ditches and build the pyramids it's like well why can't we just pay those people to do that well anyway <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a pretty small middle class too there's probably like a huge slave population and then a small middle class and a very small elite class so That's even point, if the yeah. middle class didn't like slavery they there's there's not enough of them to have an impact it is sort of yeah. what i would expect in that kind of sure. structure that kind of uh i don't know what am i like society we do see them right like we see them like that's that's who flees young kai when and, and tells people like hey young kai's just falling apart you know we were able to dig a tunnel through the brick because you know one of us is a bricklayer and we built a so those were and those were middle class folk because they're like bricklayer, you know, have a regular house, you know. But, but are they still uh, nobles? Mm. I feel like if you live in the walls of one of these cities and you dress really well, that people kind of consider you noblemen because you're not out scrounging for food I, outside I, the gates. I think they're like well off, but they don't have like title. They don't okay. have like you know what you know like what a mean? baron, like, like a Miranese yeah. or Yunkish or Asporian. Maybe that would be upper middle class because they have like several generations of holding the same like solid job you know <laughs> like like a family of lawyers has been lawyers for like six generations like they're probably not poor you know what i mean yeah. like they may not be like swimming in it but they're yeah <laughs> so those people that i think have been able to stay on the outside of all of this going on like not thinking about the fact that the tattered prince is meeting someone from a dornish prince inside of one of their their taverns or deep below one of their taverns to create a plan to potentially steal one of the dragons i think they've been able to go ah and we could probably a lot of us relate to this they were probably able to go ah they'll figure it out there's people outside the gates. Okay. You know, they, <laughs> they might catapult some stuff and that's going to be pretty bad, but we'll go in the bunker and let them do the sacking. And eventually maybe they'll all figure that out. But with Viserion and Rhaegal in the sky, I'm pretty sure I read that they destroyed an, an entire pyramid with just their bodies and their fire in this chapter. Yep. So one of them anyway. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like it had to be both. I mean, how big are these things? Not the dragons, the pyramids. How big, you know what I'm saying? Like, are they small pyramids? It's a, I really wish we had gotten that visual on TV. No kidding. That would Can have you been imagine like, man. <laughs> that element of high fantasy being adapted to the screen? I have not seen successfully done yet. We've all seen the sort of Tolkien aspect, and we've seen, like you were talking about Rome, so we've had stuff adapted from our own history and lore and its own, uh, I guess, feudalistic weaponry. We've seen... Uh, Things like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, doing a really good job of showing arrows being fletched and uh, swords being made in a large uh, blacksmith assembly line at scale. But I have not, I've yet to see a moon and a starry sky over a city of pyramids yet. Only in World of Warcraft or or things like that. I don't know if they have uh, environments like that in Crusader Kings, but you're playing with the skin 
of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Do they have the Miranese, uh, like, look they, you inside can, the you game? You can play Marine, but you don't get, like, the, the game doesn't have big images like that. You know, mm-hmm. it'll just have, like, you'll see, like, just a still photo of the dragons, like, what it looks like, and that's okay. it. There's no, it's not animated at all, so yeah. Okay. Can you imagine? Yep. <sighs> that would be so cool. That been, <laughs> I think I'm trying to imagine it. <laughs> I think Barristan said one time that the pyramid, I, I guess the main pyramid that Danny resided in was 33 levels. Yeah, I assume it's the biggest. It's 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 very much wrapped up in what we were saying before about this. Like the they all have to be above, you know, because the, all these different families are so proud of their heritage and their their gigantic wealth and all the blood that spilled to get them there. It's kind of like what we saw in Karth with those with those the really bizarre scene with the Hall of a Thousand Thrones, where like each noble is sitting on this giant absurd throne in this vast chamber that is kind of hard to picture because it must be huge <laughs> to really if for them to all have their like what are these things on wheels? Like how did that throne get that, you know? Uh, so these thrones are kind of like pyramids, you know, they're just like a way to be above everyone. They, well, these pyramids are like thrones. And, yeah, yeah, except that you live in it <laughs> yeah. instead of just sit on it. Yeah. <laughs> Such an interesting way to make your castle when you think about what castles look like. And I'm glad that they still have decks, like a nice deck and like a little sunning area. And they have pools up there, little parapets, a nice place for a dragon to land. These things are awesome. It's a shame we don't see any, anything like that in Westeros. I feel like we need a Westerosy lord to step out and, and, and uh, contract like a um, – a build for something that doesn't look so typical. Like maybe Some, yeah, someone think of the dragons, film. right? Like Danny's going to take them west to Westeros. They're going to be like, "This sucks. I want to go back to the desert. We <laughs> like it better out there. They got pyramid. We got perches. Like this is, yeah, this this Westeros is too. I bad. don't know, man. The weather, the, the weather <laughs> in the desert is is attractive for a lot of reasons, but not the the fact that they don't have trees and grass and places where you can run around barefoot without like stepping on scorpions. I had a bad dream about scorpions last time, by the way. Anyway. I think I'd be more like Stannis when it came to castles. I would just want the most, the most efficient thing. I wouldn't want any uniqueness or flamboyance or extravagance. I just want the most basic, solid, practical castle Sean, I think a pyramid is for you because it only has four (laughs) sides. It's basically constructed from the same brick the whole way through. I think that what you're talking about is a pyramid. I'll accept it. You can get your own little porch where you can brood over the city and think about whether or not you're doing a good job. Because I feel like that's all those little balconies are basically used for is to go out. Both the Bears and Daenerys are kind of using it to go outside and think about, am I doing a good job? Perhaps the gods are not deaf after all, so Barristan suddenly reflected as he watched those distant embers. If not for the rain, the fires might have consumed all of Marine by now. He saw no sign of dragons, but he had not expected to. The dragons did not like the rain. A thin red slash marked the eastern horizon where the sun might soon appear. It reminded Selmy of the first blood welling from a wound. Often, even with a deep cut, the blood came before the pain. I wanted to say something about that exact quote, if I'm not cutting you off, Zach. Dude, do your thing. You cut me off anytime you want. You're the guest. (laughs) Aziz and I had talked about, when I read that John chapter, uh, that there was a moment, for some reason, George chose for John to not be able to pull his sword out. And it was a little perplexing me. I was thinking of reasons why it might be. And Aziz was like, he just got cut. And I was like, well, it was just a graze. It's the second and third stabs haven't come yet. And Zeus is like, maybe it was worse than, than John realized. So then Quentin 
when he gets burned, seems to not quite realize the pain of the burn at first. He's like, oh, like after oh. he's aflame, right? Then we oh, hear Barrison talk yeah. about the blood sometimes comes before the pain. And I started thinking about maybe that was, maybe John did get a deeper cut that first time that I don't know if it could have severed a, a, a tendon a or a nerve or something to keep him from using his arm. But but anyway, it, it, it was like three chapters in a row with at least a reference to pain coming, you know, a wound coming, wound of pain not coming at the same time. Yeah. That's a really good catch because you're right. He does that all the time in in chapters near each other where he like, like puts parallel like evidence or clues or whatever. Like this is, this is a very under the radar example, but it's, it's very consistent with, with how he operates. So nice one. What do we think then like in the context of this battle that's about to come, maybe like applying that same, metaphor mm. to what's about to break loose in marine oh. yeah the oh. idea of the pain coming after on a the larger wound, scale maybe, not realizing yeah. how bad it is after the fact that can be applied a million billion ways totally <laughs> true Both what has happened and what's coming up yeah i like that idea yeah hmm. i think it's all the same thing it's like the sun rising and appearing like the wound is like the wound. When I used to sit in a sauna all the time before I lost my damn membership because of COVID. <laughs> COVID! <laughs> it's coming back soon anyway. I used to stare at my arm whenever I was sweating, and I would. there's no pattern to it. But the sweat would come out of my body like I felt like the stars came out of the sky. And this weird mosaic of, I mean, I guess randomness. But with a, with a reason to make it be born, and there's less of a random reason for pain to come from a wound because you're physically being stabbed, and there's less of a random reason for the sun to rise in a certain way because the sun, for us that exist, always rises on a horizon. But that sort of pattern being repeated in nature um, of the way, the look, the shape of it actually amalgamating, I think might extend all the way to the mental landscape of the realities that these characters are dealing with in these situations that involve everyone else, like uh, of the turmoil, of the unfairness about who's going to join whose side and which allegiances are going to bend because of which reasons. And then for some people, it's going to feel like how Barrison's describing, like a wound, like pain coming before the wound. And you can, and, and George, I think, connects the scale of, of reality in the, his universe and also says a lot about our universe in a more uh, eloquent and succinct way by comparing those two things that, that Barrison does with the, with the wound and the sun. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of things that have happened that are bad that they haven't felt the full repercussions of, right? right. There's uh, the... Some things maybe they have that like reflecting back when like the bloody flux was first coming. They're like, oh, some people are sick. Mm. I had no idea how bad it was going to be. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, some of the other losses they've experienced, people that have that have been killed. They don't realize how how important those people were until they're gone. And it may take a while before they even realize it. Uh, I, I can see that over and over again being an element of what's going on in this story and in real life. It's certainly an yeah. overwhelming theme of A Dance with Dragons is that thing, like almost every nation, city, castle, things are going to get worse, right? right? The every Like there's just starvation, 
portented everywhere, like here as well, not just, you know, not just for winter over there, but here. Like there's already been cannibalism and starvation at Slaver's Bay. It's already been happening. And now and in we the have North. disease. And yeah, like we all have all that four. We've talked a lot about the um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse imagery that's all over Slaver's Bay. And uh, well, yeah, that's not that, – what's worse than the apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the the mother of all disasters. <laughs> or father, take your pick, yeah. Both. It's the parents of all disasters. Why do you think that us as ground floor but also God-level readers and A Song of Ice and Fire from the perspective of reading the story and not experience know all these things and still – resist i'm speaking for you for y'all but i feel like you're on the same page as me why do we knowing everything that we know resist his dar's peace then i just don't think it's a realistic i just don't see it being realistic at this i don't if especially if you put like daenerys's position versus theirs there's no that's what you're talking about earlier there's no middle ground in these kinds of debates and in this kind of uh it's conquering. I mean, and so I just, I don't see how there could be peace necessarily when these two frames of mind are so deeply at odds. And you have so many different people with so many different um, agendas all converging in the same place. I just don't see how anybody could wrangle that into any semblance of a long-term peace. If you can use a modern, like, a- analog for it, you could say something, not necessarily, not that the concept is new, but it's something that, that people say these days that it's, um, people have surely said this throughout history, but it's particularly being said right now as well, is that you can't have, you have to have justice before you can have peace. And as long as there's slavery, you certainly don't have justice. Because <laughs> like, yeah, that's not actual no, peace. <laughs> yeah. Now, For humans, maybe, at least. you know, a, if you will, a compromise, potentially, right? Is it we can get justice in Marine and she doesn't have to, she can like, doesn't need, at least right now, uh, potentially the slavery elsewhere, that, that can be the compromise. You guys have slavery in your cities. I can't stop that. But in my city, there's no slavery. Well, they did that, right? That right, is what they, they did. Even and, that, then, and then they do the slave marts, like, right, it's, <laughs> right it, outside exactly. the city. Exactly. <laughs> they still find ways <laughs> right to skirt it. It still affects their economies, even if they, <laughs> even if theoretically they want to be okay with that compromise, it still affects economies of other cities, even outside those slave cities aren't happy about it. And they also still want to try to angle for whatever slaves even around that city, maybe in addition to like what maybe would theoretically work as a compromise they have whatever egos or or taunting her or or wanting vengeance or plotting for the future it's not so much i think that we're resistant to this piece is that we're suspicious of it we just don't see like maybe let's say danny hadn't disappeared do we think it's all going to work out let's say his dar is forthright he's not the harpy right say say that the harpy is a yet revealed character it's not the green grace or anyone right that everyone is on uh danny's side and they want to try to do what she wants to do still do you think it's going to work out they still haven't stopped the harpy there's still all these outside entities that aren't happy with what she's doing she still can't control the dragons there's still disease exactly there's so much so now war isn't necessarily the answer to all this but burying their heads in the sand isn't either uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough situation and i think that's part of why it's interesting because a lot of times 
when you're reading or watching a movie or show or whatever, part of what I do, I think most people, you're thinking about what would I do, right? That's one way you relate to characters. I would have done this, what they should do with it when you're watching a football game or whatever, right? Everyone yeah. has this I could have made that throw. Do. But in this situation, I don't know what I would do. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you want to just try to do the pure, uh, honorable thing like Barristan, but then there's just some reason that you just can't. And sometimes even if you're like, all right, screw morals, let's just figure out what's the most practical way to get out ahead. Sometimes you can't do that either because the abandonment of your morals, you lose other things with that. You know, sometimes there's just not really a good answer. And I think that's part of why it's so interesting particularly here in Marine, I feel like George has just set Danny up with this impossible situation. Just one mm -hmm. thing after another, there's just no way around, no good decision, a constant lesser two evils. And I feel like he's doing a similar thing to John at the wall. And yeah, if I thought about it more, sure. it's probably similar. Maybe Stannis, there's other characters who are constantly presented with a lesser two evils. And some characters like Cersei, they just choose a thing that's easier or better for them. And uh, some characters like Barrison choose the things that are just the more straightforward moral, but it still isn't working out for any of them, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think also for us as readers, we've kind of been in this Miranese knot for such a long Say time. Say it for the people in the back, Hannah. That as a reader, <laughs> I want all hell to break loose because I'm excited for the catalyst of change that that's going to bring about and for the movement that that's going to force. And after the slog of Dance of Dragons and Feast for Crows kind of moving towards these culminations, I think to finally be moving forward from Marine and onto places like Pentos and Westeros and these next steps that we've been thinking about for so long, that's way more interesting to me as a reader than his Dar sitting on his little fancy little dragon thrones trying to tell people what to do. So I think that's also why that kind of comes into play for us. Is because I think you're being overly optimistic. I don't think we've been out of Marine for a long time. I think we're being pulled tighter. Oh, no. <laughs> New tangles Gosh. are getting in it. No. <laughs> I'm prepared for it. I like it a lot more in podcast form than uh, than I did first reading through it. <laughs> what did you think, reading it for the first time, Sean, from Unsullied to Sully perspective, the knot itself, were you like, this is not as bad as what people say? I really enjoyed it. Or well, if I could add to the, if I could add to the question, it's one thing to that's interesting too is that you have some preconceived notions given, like just osmosis from talking to people, but mostly from the show as well. The show, so yeah. I don't know how much like the show like affected what you were expecting because I know it's like it's pretty different, right? But you still had to, you might have still expected some of the like milestones to be hit or whatever. Every Barrison chapter, I expect him to die. I'll tell you that. Like, I, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, a, yeah. that's exactly one of the things I was wondering. Not, yeah. not only do I feel like there's a lot of foreshadowing, and maybe I wouldn't be as in tune to that foreshadowing if it wasn't for the show, but I just like, oh, well, here's where Barrison dies. Oh, no. Hey, oh, he made it. Okay. Well, now here's where he dies. Oh, no. Still no. <laughs> but, um, and I also did, um, I don't know, was prepped for the idea that the story got more and more sprawling and that some people were maybe bored with all the, I don't know, politicking or whatever of Marine. But I'm like, I've, I've, I like that. I'm I'm not reading this for some battle scene. Like, I don't, I don't really care that much <laughs> about action. You know, I, Sometimes it leads to action. Sometimes a potential action adds excitement or intrigue. But to me, that's not the reason for it. The reason that I'm reading this is to hear what people think, to, to hear what motivates them, 
to to see the dilemmas that they face, to to see how George is interwoven so many different plot lines and so many characters from so far away and all the sort of symbolism and allegory that he gets mixed in with it all. To me, it's so much more than just like some fight scene or some battle action or something like that. And so the idea of all this political intrigue wasn't daunting to me. I was kind of excited by it. That's it. I understand why people who are it's excited for some climactic moment and how some people are more tied to certain storylines than other. I is even thinking, man, it's been a thousand, maybe at least a thousand pages since we've heard anything about Santa, right? It's been mm. so long. So anyone who's <laughs> wanting you. one character or another, it's been forever since you've heard about some of them. And so I, I, I can understand some people's frustration with how some of it might seem like it's dragging out or how it's not exciting enough or how it's not the characters they care about. I understand all that, but I'm not phased mm-hmm. by it. I'm loving every little bit of it. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, one thing that I, that I think matters a lot. That's great that you say that too. And I think it's, uh, it is difficult. Um, and it's a lot less once you like understand a lot of it, if you just a little bit of, you know, extra time thinking about it goes a long way because it, it's, it's a lot more fun when it's not confusing. Um, and uh, it is a little confusing because there's so many players and, and a lot of the characters are not characters that you have the same attachment to that, say, some of the ones you name, like Sansa or whatever. You know, you don't care about um, Skaha's Mokandak as much as Sansa. Now, he's interesting, but yeah, like he's kind of like the little finger of, of Slaver's Bay. But, um, you know, that isn't super apparent. If you don't realize that Skaha's is the little finger of Slaver's Bay – you know, that's that's something cool that you're missing and that, you know, without that one of these all these different cool things that you might not catch, then, yeah, it may, maybe it's not as fun without seeing those things, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So it's like it's a higher effort piece of entertainment than the rest of the story is perhaps a, a way you could put it. That's, you know, the constant thought I have reading through it all is I'm going to have to read this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and George designed it that way, yeah, right? There's yeah. so mm-hmm. much I know, and like I'm like reading every chapter twice and taking notes, and like I, I'm into it, and I knew there was a lot to it, and I still know that I'm not getting nearly all of this here. <laughs> like uh, sometimes I've even daunted by the idea that other people have already been pouring over this for years and are so far ahead of me, but to me that's more opportunity for engagement, I guess. You know, like yeah. now that I've read it. People don't have to worry about spoiling stuff around me. Weird thoughts that I have. Someone can tell me why I'm wrong or I can press someone with something they didn't think of even after they read it four years ago or whatever. So it's a very community building. Yeah. Like, for example, you just you caught that thing about uh, wounds and realization, you know, uh, and, you know, like obviously I've read the series a lot longer ago than you did but you caught that you know and i didn't catch that and mm-hmm. i don't think they did uh, and i don't think exactly i would have it if not for my conversation with you so there you go a perfect example like right. fresh eyes just says a lot but also like to the greater point like given how long this book took to come out or ha- is taking to come out in the previous one you do have a lot of time to catch up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're not losing any time now we still don't have the following book so yeah. you have, you've had enough time <laughs> to get completely on the same page as everyone else and the same for everyone listening it, that's just how it is. It's a it's an interesting dynamic to be in the middle of. But uh, I think what you just what you just touched on, Sean, is the key part of it. It's there's that personal experience that everyone has with it, and it's their own unique journey. And this could be applied to a lot more than just a book that you're reading. I think it's uh, just any kind of thing that you translate your passion to or experience in real life. 
But um, what what we're finding out and what we're doing here on the podcast and what we're doing right now this very second on Zoom.com, or sorry, Zoom.us, <laughs> is um, <laughs> that more so than the personal experience, us sharing and having conversations in a way that everyone wants to be a part of and everyone wants to see something good come out of or everyone everyone wants to feel something good while they're doing it through that effort and that um, donation of your own time something new can come out of it something interesting in, in a way that you might not have previously thought or that you couldn't have done completely on your own and uh, i think that the unique combination of of people and the conversations that they share about these subjects are a lot safer than some of the big questions in life but i think like the the lessons that george is, is trying to translate in a situation with how things are going to work out in marine i think that that same lesson can be applied to many other different concepts in the bigger picture yeah i now know if i don't want to uh get my enemies to come after me to not fling corpses into their there you go there you go that's exactly what i mean (laughs) real quick zach i don't know uh how much longer we plan on going are we summing up in five minutes or do we have another hour we're just talking man okay we don't have a time limit yeah do you have a time limit do you have to go feed the cats no i mean hopefully we don't go that long that i will eventually (laughs) you're like my cats need to be fed (laughs) Uh, but i've gone through about half of my uh bullet points that I had prepared. Honestly, here, I haven't so. even touched my notes. I think I've read one of the passages <laughs> that I copied. But Some things are, are being covered by other conversations yeah. that come up. But uh, one, one, Another thing that happened early in a chapter that, again, if it wasn't for s- some prep work I did for this episode that I might not have taken note of, but I don't, have, I don't remember the character's name, but there was a knight in, in way back in a Game of Thrones. There mm-hmm. was a knight, he was John Aaron Squire, that Gregor Clegane killed in that tournament. And, Sir Hugh, yeah. And he was... Uh, Disease um, with the memory. <laughs> he was there alone. Like the rest of the Aaron party had left. And so no one was really there for him. So Barristan stood, I can't think of the term, but like, you know, watched over his... Did his vigil. wake. His vid, thank you, his vigil, right? It reminded me of uh, watching over Quentin. Uh, after he had been burned laying in that bed. It was similar, embarrassing, mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it, but like trying to make sure he got the proper honor and respects, you know? I don't know if that's, I thought a little bit about like if there was some meaning to it being three days. Anytime there's a number attached to something, I wonder what that, <laughs> what's behind that. Yeah, um, where did that come from? And sometimes it, it sure is horrifying be, that yeah. it took three days to die. God, jeez, yeah. man. And, uh, <laughs> the state but of it, it might have just been maybe to set a little bit of timeline for how long it's been the 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 other yeah, donors may have been in for prison the problems or to how diffuse. long Dan has been gone and stuff like mm, that. But it still reminded me of that moment of Barristan. He's he. There's a, a a big piece, a big part of his role is incorporating Westerosi culture into Marine, keeping Danny attached to it, keeping in his mind what he thinks is honor, which might be different than them. But this sort of sense of Westerosi knighthood and chivalry and culture he's mm-hmm. kind of integrating that into the rest of them it seems like he's the lone the the lone soul trying to protect these cupbearers from being slaughtered you know um, in his mind he's like somebody's got to do it i think that that's been probably the last handful of decades for him and he just kind of sticks it out there without being asked sometimes yeah uh, and i wonder if or how much more of that we'll see of his for better or worse sticking to the old ways or whatever uh it seems honorable and proper that you wanted to respect quentin and maybe yeah. the dornishman will 
be appreciative bring, in some yeah, way. Bring Doran back a more positive story because of Barrison's efforts. We'll see. Right. No, definitely. I think that uh, one aspect of that that people can really appreciate and that I I definitely appreciate when I read through this. I'm curious how you all felt was whenever he's meeting with the pit fighters and um, he pulls out blueprints and maps. <laughs> he brought all this material to the meeting. And I was just like, damn, he did this work. That's what he did when he wasn't sleeping last night. Mm. That That's when his level of preparation and care for the situation, I think, really comes through and impresses people whenever it's not just it's not just an idea that he has, but he really came prepared to give them something to work off of. Um, that's a good that's a good to me, a good example of it. But mm. I don't know. I think that the way that he fights in the battle is, again, I think that we're going to have results from the way that he wants to put his personality into the world. And I think that it is we've we've seen from the sample chapter that it it does raise the morale of the men around him, his choices and the way that he decides to I, I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, his own personal biases that he's refused to let go of that uh, that becomes what your personality is. Yeah, like they they don't understand a lot of that. They're like yeah. they side eye a lot of those choices like why would you do that? But at the same time, they at least accept that it's brave because he's mm-hmm. at least taking on something that's difficult at the very least it's he's challenging himself they may not agree with like the the cultural reasoning behind it but they but there's no argument that it isn't difficult to you're giving you maybe like making you're making it harder on yourself like you're upholding something whether it's worth upholding that thing or not is a different question but the act of doing it is unquestionably makes the whole job harder it it right. definitely That's gives a, them a certain respect yeah. for his integrity, right? They they yeah. have a respect, yes. yeah. like they accepted him as the the head of this council, as the hand of the queen. I think his his I don't know his uh, force of of presence, his, his his sense of justice or whatever is what's making him. Even if they don't like it, at sometimes they still have a certain respect and trust in him. It's part of his his arsenal. That's part yeah, yeah. On, on top of his decisions and his capabilities is that aura like the Green Grace had, like Glaza Gloria had in this chapter. He's still saying like, get off my lawn. But he's also, uh, they also know he kicked their butt in a sword fight. Right. So, you know, yeah. they can't just be like, ah. <laughs> yeah, they can't totally blow him off. Yeah, they're like, this guy does know what he's talking about. Like, it's it's like Brown Ben. It's the reverse of what Brown Ben said, right? Brown Ben said, there's old cell swords and there's bold cell swords. There's no old, bold cell swords. Well, this is an old, bold barristan, you yeah. know? So oh, he's like the exception. You know, that reminded me, <laughs> twice in the chapter, someone said to Barristan, if I may be so bold. I, <laughs> oh, I think both the Sunday and uh, the Green Grace both said that. Good tonight. Lord. Good Lord, <laughs> George. That. That's great. What well, if George missed that? It <laughs> makes me accident. think about what the conversation that he has with Archibald and Garris at the end, or in the middle, when he goes to visit them in the cell. And we can have a whole conversation about this, but Garris is like, Quentin was doing this all for love. He loved her. And Barristan says, he essentially says, stop BSing me. He says, what, Prin- what Prince Quentin did, he did for Dorne. You take me for some doting grandfather. <laughs> like, I, I think that that kind of plays exactly into all these other examples you guys are saying. He seems potentially unassuming to some newbie to the scene like Gareth Drinkwater trying to play him and trying to um, like get himself out of trouble. But Barristan's like, I've been around the block. I'm not just some nice grandpa that's trying to keep the peace here. How about mm-hmm. that, Garrus and um, and Arch? How about 
at the end of it. At, uh, we spent all this time with them and their epic adventure across Essos and hearing all these deep conversations that they have with Quentin and all their aspirations and uh, all their opinions about how things should go. And then to be at the end of it and to experience it through a retelling of the situation where one is cradling Quentin, be- being burnt after just beating him uh, to get the flames off of him, and the other is just standing there doing nothing. And the moment that opposition arrives, all of that talking and all that ability and all that adventuring amounts to him just dropping his sword immediately. It's like all of Garrus's swagger. Just like everything. Out the door. Everything. The, it's just what a crazy... It's it's like the soft version of what happened to Quentin, except he, he got roasted, but he was the one at the head of it. But it's just... Uh, it's really humbling to read that from people who were so important in the book. And I, I think it's pretty cool of George to do that. I know that it probably bores a lot of people that it's not always Jon Snow or Danny every chapter. <laughs> but I think that's a it's a neat style to integrate. I need to read more fantasy books because I know that a lot of authors like Brandon Sanderson, um, whether he's inspired by George, I don't know, but uh, play around with POVs and uh, different like level of importance, different side characters and their, their POV <laughs> yeah. chapters. Uh, Sean has COVID. I'm pretty sure that's what that was. <laughs> uh, but um, vaccinated. Oh, maybe you can still get it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how those work. You can fail your saving throw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I had a, a, a couple thoughts on Quentin. Um, one is that uh, I think he was an interesting character, and in that he was a little bit more down to earth. I remember when he first appeared, uh, thinking that I appreciated that he wasn't some like perfect knight in shining armor, some suave, smooth talker. He's just, he's just this dude, you know what I mean? Trying to make his dad happy. And, uh, he's not, you know, the, the, the typical sort of suave or expert or old and wise. He's just kind of a regular, he's kind of a Sam Tarley kind of character. Maybe not as, as, I don't know, inept as Sam, or at least in some ways Sam is inept, but he's maybe a little bit more relatable, a little bit more of like a regular person. And kind of, as we saw early on, another character who seemed central that got killed, Ned said, you know, you can't really be brave if you're not scared in the first place. And Quentin being scared made him more brave uh, going in to face that dragon. And I I wonder if that also made Jairus and and Arch and other characters of... further endeared to him even if they're frustrated by him sometimes they also have to respect his courage i guess um it's like the it's like the barristan thing the same thing they yeah, have to respect like his dedication yeah, to yeah. Quentin their, their puts it off even if barristan's like she didn't do it for love she did it for dorn and that's better really in barristan's mind he's doing it for a, a more <laughs> yeah. noble purpose and some some you know immature infatuation or something while he feels the way he feels about his lady from back in the day too oh uh, yeah sure. yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but anyway it's a, another thing that it does is for better or worse because i can imagine a lot of people being frustrated or confused why did george spend all this time in his character just to have him die mm-hmm. but i think i don't know if this is the reason but a reason a effect of that is you are worried about everyone right when if Ned can die, if Quentin can die, I mean maybe John is. Dead. I don't think anyone really thinks that John is dead, but I I don't. If he if he if John just turns out to be just straight dead, can <laughs> we really be that surprised? You know, like it's George doesn't seem to be afraid to kill people off, even people who seem central, even people who he's committed a lot of writing to. Uh, that 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 almost to me is a, a reason. 
to itself to to kill off a character, to spend time in a character and have them die, just to keep us on our toes about who's sure. safe and who's not. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with Quentin, and we've spent so much time kind of talking about this and speculating about this over the years, but you look at his story arc as the chosen one and this is his destiny and he's doing this because he's the guy and then that doesn't work out for him and i think that we can look at a lot of the other characters that we know and love who kind of have some of that same mentality like john or even daenerys and it's like this is my divine creed to free all the slaves and head to westeros or to save the world from what's happening beyond the wall you know, nobody is untouchable. And I think that that's such a big lesson for any of us to learn that's happening in this little microcosm of, of Quentin's story. And I like how Barristan, I love the line where Barristan has him laying on Danny's bed. And he's like, he might as well, it, it seems only kind read to let him thing, die please. in the bed he had crossed half the world to reach. He's like, I'm going to give him this little thing because he felt like, he was the guy and in many ways he was the guy for his plot he was the main character in his life um i'm gonna give him this nod to all the efforts that i put into it but let's not bs and pretend like this is something that it's not and let's continue to kind of push the narrative forward and how can you guys help me out now that you've caused all of this drama and let the dragons loose let's actually make something out of this and then you can go home so Barristan asks them to go treat with Tattered Prince and um, get the hostages back. And it'll be interesting to see how that ends up playing out and how yeah. I was curious on everybody's thoughts on like Pentos and whether they're going to be successful in offering that to the Tattered Prince from their perspective now that Quentin is gone and kind of what their relationship looks like. I don't know. There's a lot of questions and intrigue, I think, that comes with the Tattered Prince and their relationship with Dorn. And- Those two are really important just by its, as an aside, this is a small side topic here, but as far as like speaking to what Sean was saying with kind of the point of Quentin's arc, which of course there's not just one point. Like you said, there's a lot of points or purposes or lessons or what have you. One of which I think is that... Um, is set up by a lot of what people are thinking about, which is um, a couple of different characters are thinking about what um, did about, especially Ariane um, later on. Uh, they're thinking about like what what this deal is, like why what's going on with Daenerys and what has she killed her brother and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's really easy for the rumor mill to. to get out of hand here. It's perfect. Like, oh, for the Danny's dragons killed Quentin. Like she's yeah. responsible. Um, so politically, I think that could be a major reason is that to, it drives a wedge between Dorn and Daenerys who would otherwise be somewhat natural allies in a lot of ways um, in terms of who their enemies are. Uh, but this is potentially a big roadblock there, uh, which could push Dorn towards Fagan. Um, young Griff, Fagon instead, right? That, so that in that sense, on the political scale, it's a lot easier to see where this might lead. Obviously, that's not by no means a sure thing. I'm not speaking. I'm not like trying to be catchy with spoilers here and not speak to what we know. We don't know. Right. So but it's just like obviously the the idea of Doran Martell sends his son on this important quest uh, to marry the Dragon Queen and the dragons kill him like that. Yeah. Looks bad. That looks like she did that, especially if 
people know, uh, believe the rumor that she killed her own brother, which she didn't, but it can look, it could easily be interpreted that way. Uh, so even if, even if bad, yeah, bad reputation stuff, even if, uh, drink and Archie get back and tell Doran, even if they, you know, their level heads prevail, they explain the reality of the scenario Doran himself doesn't get him overly emotional about his son having died. He he understands that it wasn't really Dana's fault. Like even if they all like are fair and understanding about it all, how does Doran present that to the realm? How does what is he? Well, I sent my son over there to team up with the dragon woman, and and he died. Like wait, he you sent him where to team up with who? How did he die? Like it's gonna be hard to explain this. Even if he and how do they outrace the news, right? Yeah. How does Archibald like if Archibald and Garrus were the first ones to bring the news? Yeah. Then maybe maybe they could control they could, the they spin. But there's almost no way they're going to beat the news yeah. to Dorn. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be, and you know how it goes. Like the first story is the one that ten, people tend to believe if it's widespread. Like maybe that that isn't always true if the story isn't widespread. But if the story hits the whole nation. Like, yeah, how are you going to undo? Like, actually, it wasn't that. Like, that just, it just doesn't work that way. We all know that. Like, corrections, when, when, a, news, when a newspaper in the real world publishes an article that's sensational, and then they publish a correction, it's like not even 120th of the people see that correction. You know, that point was even made by George. Remember how quickly everyone knew that Quentin had died? When Barrison went to mm-hmm. meet Skaz, right. he already knew about it, you know? Yeah. So yeah. you can't keep that kind of thing on the wraps, right? Like people broke into the, like people, like one of his guards was killed and yeah. it was a commotion. Yeah. It's hard to keep that under wraps. You're right. What you're describing is, is what is going to be one of those scenarios probably where we're so mad that people are confused about the truth and we just need something really simple to happen. And it's not; it might not happen to someone that doesn't deserve it because Danny had no no role in him dying, other than the fact that she existed and he really wanted to be with her. You know, another thought I have uh, that you brought up, Hannah Pentos. What makes anyone think they can promise Penta promise Pentos? I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, even if someone was arrogant enough to think that they could do it, I can't believe anyone else is naive enough go to, for to it. believe it. Like, I don't yeah. understand how the Tatter Prince thinks someone's going to give him Pentos. Like, like Danny has Marine right now, ostensibly. How <laughs> yeah. the, does she really? Like, does right. Cersei have <laughs> King's Landing? You know, like that. These are even people who like ostensibly have something right they have real power real respect uh, experience you know, uh, yeah some amount of experience some amount of yeah. uh, authority or whatever it is and they still don't really have john doesn't really have the wall like no one people clearly right? yeah like, even <laughs> right. when people supposedly are hey, in that's control not of something they are barely in control of it how do they just give it away first someone has to get pintos Right. Who uh, we don't. Uh, well, he has an army. So presumably he's like, well, just knock down the barricades and I'll I'll, I'll do the take, holding on. Yeah. To but you're right. It is a big ask. Yeah. A big I, ask. It, 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 not only knocking down the barricades, it's still just another freaking diversion. Danny's like, when is she supposed to give it to him? Before or after she goes to Westeros, before or after the bloody plague is over, before or after their city has enough, her own city has enough food, like before or after she 
tames her dragon. You know what I mean? Like at what point? And there's, mm-hmm. there's way more foreshadowing for her going to Volantis than Pentos. Right. I mean, it's just quite yes. possible she's yeah. going to go to both. But Volantis is definitely on the agenda. So and like maybe yeah. Barristan <laughs> knows he's promising something he can't give, even if that is a little outside of what I would expect from him. But maybe yep, he sure. already thinks that Tatter Prince doesn't have that isn't really worthy of his honor in the first place. Or if he's so stupid to think she'll give it or hey, if I promise and Danny doesn't give it, what's well, not my fault? You know, like maybe sure. he can rationalize. Or he's desperate. We don't hear that rationalization which i would like to he seems to be genuine. he's pretty excited yeah, yeah he's pretty yeah. excited about he the prospect something. of the fact and well it also made me think about what daenerys is gonna how daenerys is gonna react to something like that because i know that daenerys said that she illyrio is in pentos and daenerys isn't going to try to cross him because he's done so much to help her even though he's now supporting somebody else but that just is another piece into that whole question of how that transition could or potentially could not go and then it also makes me think a lot about how long it really is going to take for her to get to Westeros so even if she leaves Marine immediately following this battle that will probably span like the first fourth of the book she still has all these pit stops to make along the way and um, before she eventually makes a final destination. And so I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying, Sean. It feels like such a, and also when you think about like what the tattered prince agreed to do for Quentin, such a wildly risky ask for the promise of a potential thing. Yeah. In that situation, I think that he just wanted uh, someone to be able to guide him really well to potentially be able to steal the dragons, which is part of the reason why he had a plan that involved the carts in a way that Quentin didn't really know all the information about it and why the brazen bee not the brazen bees, but why his, uh, like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Pretty Maris. Uh, yeah, Pretty Maris. Why, why she was so quick to escape and uh, why they were already on their toes. I think that in this scenario, there's less to, to gain, really, except uh, just the normally normal uh, choosing of multiple sides that the Tatter Prince, I'm sure, has done to get out of slippery situations whenever warring parties are going against each other. If he hedges his bets, he's probably more likely to survive on either side. And so I think that it's good for Barrison to have found something of use in this conversation from these Dornish guys to get a little bit of intel on people that might be fighting against him whenever he bursts out of the walls with all of his men. But uh, I don't know. I guess the Tatter Prince doesn't have to do much. It's not saying that you have to carry the entire battle on your back. You just have to get us some hostages. And then another person, he continues to have these people promise to give him the thing that he really wants. The thing that confuses me about it most, again, because it doesn't seem like that much work, is that he's from talking to him he's one of the sharper characters that we've ever had in the series on the page talk in my opinion and if he's that self-possessed and aware of what's going on why would he believe to to both of your points why would he believe that he can be promised pentos yeah it just seems so random to be pro- promised That's the an thing entire city perplexing to me that he would be that naive Exactly. I don't think that he is. So I'm just curious as to what I guess I, I did think that maybe he would just be satisfied with plundering it for one week. Right. If he just okay. like rode in with his <laughs> troops and someone else supporting him and he stole a bunch of gold and then ran away. And like that's good. Maybe he doesn't want to rule it for the rest of his life. That's okay. all that I can make sense of. Uh, I don't know. He's got a deep seated thing. And that's in this story. Those are the things that sort of break the the sense that a lot of these power or institutions of power really have the 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 heart the 
the thing that burned you a long time ago and that you're really biased against or like these really strong feelings that you have right now. So I think that for him, we're seeing on our last episode, I was talking about uh, Varys and the epilogue of A Dance of Dragons making me feel a lot less certain in his ability to hold it all together and to be as deadly and sharp with his actions as he always has been because he's getting close to what he desires and his emotion is starting to peek through. And uh, I feel like this is maybe a weak a weak point for the Tatter Prince if he's just going to like... He did give kind of like a, a Batman villain speech to... He uh, did. There was that. <laughs> yeah, the speech The speech is what gave it away for me. It also just maybe the brains just all over the place. Maybe that's just fill us in on what's happening, but it did seem a little odd. Yeah. I, I think there was a little bit of, of more signaling in this chapter from George about that scenario whenever Barristan was reflecting about Masande. And he he outright said... And I've never seen this in the story before. I loved that it was put this way. And, of course, Barristan knew it the whole time. He outright said, in Westeros, in King's Landing, uh, Varys' full-time job was to trick people, trick the, the crown's enemies into hating each other. And then Littlefinger's job was, what was Littlefinger's job? Money. Well, Littlefinger wasn't really around back then. but He was only around the last few years. I mean, he was there, but like, what did Littlefinger had only been in... He, his job was just money, bribes. He talked about that. I thought he lumped the Varys and Littlefinger together in that role of pitting the 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 crown's enemies against each other. Well, Varys has been doing that for like thirty plus years. Yeah. Where Littlefinger's only been on the small council for like three or four years. So, but he did. Yeah, but he made an impression think about Littlefinger's role, and it, that's my, yes, that's you're, not my you're right. Thing. I'm just I saying that Littlefinger and Varys. This, do, I got it. Yeah. I'm just saying this whole pitting things like people against each other yeah. is like established for Varys in his mind for a long yeah. time, for like decades, since Ares' time. In King's Landing, bribes have been Littlefinger's domain. Okay, that's a bit, in, bribes, yeah, yeah, that's not a lot, <laughs> but, you know, bribing. Whilst Lord Varys had the task of fostering division amongst the crown's enemies, his own duties have been more straightforward. Anyway, that's a cool job to have. It's a good quote. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is cool. You would break. And you can really see that piece. coming with Varus too, right? Like what he's going to do. Like you can kind of predict, especially what we were talking about with like Danny and rumors. Yeah. Right. Like if da- if Varus decides that Danny is his enemy, the enemy of his claimant, it's over watch him for go her. off with the propaganda. Yeah. Like he is an expert. Like what you do not want him as an enemy when you're, especially when she's she's an easy target. Let's be honest. Like she's a woman. She's young she's a targaryen who's the son the daughter of the mad king like you could emphasize that she's the sister of rhaegar mm-hmm. but no he'll emphasize <laughs> that she's the daughter of the mad king that's like the two different ways to emphasize that and then there's the dothraki and the unsullied like westerosi don't like dothraki and they don't like eunuchs like or the mess of marine this isn't my opinion it's westerosi yeah. opinion like they don't like women rulers they don't like foreigners they don't you know like they just danny doesn't represent things they like so it's easy to for varus to turn that against her uh like someone less skilled than Varus could do that but he's a master so i think that's a, i think that's a big part of quentin's death like where it's a lot of it's headed is how it triggers opinions and political movements uh but it's also you know a great personal story yes sean you got to go back to read the first line of quentin's first chapter okay mm-hmm. okay adventure stank yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of the ship but also this great big event and how does he end his body he's he literally ends up like a stinking yeah. corpse you know, <laughs> yeah, his body so was so his eyes were pus or his so eyes were you guys are bouncing all around two of my other notes in here uh bring us home man go. bounce us right into it pull it all back together <laughs> one was the um uh my sunday uh 
I feel like she's had, there have been several slightly odd Masunday moments. Uh, one of them was in this chapter when, which I wouldn't have even thought too much about it. It even having read it a second or third time, if I wasn't already thinking a little bit, but when she, when, when Quentin's dead and she's like, you know, he, he, he's gone to a better place or whatever. Look, he's smiling. And Barrison's like, he doesn't even have lips. <laughs> you weirdo. <laughs> what do you mean? He's smiling. <laughs> uh, and then there was another time when, she, in the past, she had said that she heard Danny screaming or crying in the night. And I chalked that up to like she was having sex with Dario or something, right? But there was another <laughs> time when she said she heard scratching on the walls. And I still had figured thing. that out. And I even wondered if there, we even mentioned earlier that one bricklayer that had come from the other city and showed up. And he had like tunneled through the wall to get out. But then in this chapter, they said that the marks of the harpy had been scratched in the walls. And I wonder if that was what Miss Sunday was hearing. No, no. Look, you got to think of another one, though. There's another great example that you might not you might have, might not be considering here. And that's that uh, Viserion. They noticed that Viserion had, oh, dug, had dug a, a little cavern. That's in brick. Yeah, yeah, that's scratching out a cave. That would make a lot more noise than these other things, I think, because it's like a big carving. Still, it's hard for her to hear that, but... You did you touch on something very interesting because Masande is obviously very different than her show version. She's 10 years old, has big golden eyes, which reminds people of the children of the forest. And the children of the forest, not saying she's a child of the forest, but it's like a similar like a sort of aspect. Right. And they have inf- they have phenomenal hearing mm. too. She sometimes seems to be almost fortuitous. Like she was yeah. she has warned Danny not to do things. Yes. She's wise beyond her years. Yeah. Uh, Super smart. Like, she's the one that, like, remember Barrison this was like, it, it had been Miss Sande's idea, mm-hmm. and blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. You know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, and she's like, what, you mean the 11-year-old or yes. 10-year-old girl's idea? Yep, her. <laughs> yeah, I think he did say she was like, 11, well, so she, it's, it's been a year, I guess. She's can, can yeah. age, but... Yeah. Uh, to me, she seems like she's a combination in this chapter of what a Varys and Littlefinger skill set would be. And who do we know would be that good at that point? And that's sort of how Barristan saw her as well. It was like, uh, that's what made him think about those... Uh, functions of those two in King's Landing. So what's up with her? Yeah, I don't know if they if we're supposed to get that she has some sort of, you know, sixth sense, some kind of seer, some or it, does she just have really good hearing and is really wise for a little kid, or is there some supernatural element to her? You know, I thought maybe she'd have a she's had a really hard life compared to Varys or Littlefinger. <laughs> exactly. Or maybe it's going to get, maybe she'll be on nothing but terraces and have nice lily pad floating <laughs> pools from now on if it goes well. <laughs> but I thought that she'd had a really hard life and that she was very smart and self sufficient in a way that she's able to handle adults with her words and her niceness to continue to put herself into good situations. Because before she worked for Daenerys, she had a similar job for someone else that was in charge. And that's pretty cool. I mean, I feel like it took a lot of work to get there. So outside of the potential supernatural things about her or her being a child of the forest, which, I mean, come on, let me get that connection. Let <laughs> let her be from wherever she's mm-hmm. from. Let her be from Noth. Isn't there a connection there with the potential uh, founding of the... Well, there is something weird going on with the butterfly and nature protecting right. them. Like, right. There is definitely something going on yeah. there. I, I, like, that's why I say it's like parallel. It's like so far away from the children, like where they where they roost or whatever. What if it's a whatever tunnel? Term you want to what if it's a tunnel? Use. Under, underground. But, uh, yeah, tunnel, sure. Like massive... Can you imagine if you could speed travel feet. from the great, the great Weirwood tree to Noth? 
travel through the center of the world. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like through the Earth's core. Yes. <laughs> through the first, you got to pay toll to the lava people. Then they're large <laughs> and scary, and they're wyverns. They're small. You're actually going under the, where the krakens live. Like you're going. <laughs> yeah. That okay. So outside of those potentials, maybe it's just hardness that uh, and craftiness that has put her in the situation. I think that a good indicator of what she is or what she might end up doing. That's what my question is. A good way to know about it is to kind of guess and speculate. I'm curious what you three think of what is her, what is her end game? What is her goal here? Because I feel like she is working Barry, and I think that she does like him. But I do feel like she was working him in this chapter. I feel like that was pretty clear. She's not being sincere necessarily. I think she's trying to fill in the. You know, she knows Barristan isn't capable of of real making some of these realizations and. Uh, she wants us all to succeed. You know, I mean, I think she's highly motivated, like, because she said her own brothers were made into Unsullied. She's, um, she really does want to stay with Daenerys. She likes, you know, where things are headed as far as, like, it's the best place for her to be in this world. And uh, so I think she's just lending her her wisdom where she can because she knows it's needed. And that that could be a big part of, like, what's going forward. Like, she does have that childlike child of the forest aspect to her i think that's part of maybe a literary thing purpose um to that which is to show that her wisdom is transcends a similar place like it's like it's this you know um, almost mystical thematic. thing yeah but not quite and it's it's a part it's a, like danny's gonna have a lot of really interesting people around her giving advice uh like makoro may end up at her side which is like compare to Mel, compare makoro to melisandra right as sure. a, as a as stannis is already proto danny in so many ways well now danny's gonna have some of these same like diverse group of people around she's not she doesn't really have a davos um but maybe barrettson is sort of like sort of like a davos i guess but she but she's got to have like a she, yeah she's getting jorah <laughs> and she's gonna have Tyrion. But that isn't, like, isn't a sign of what's gonna happen to davos <laughs> Dude, not many people. Not many people so shout like, out Grolio. I'll, I'll give you that. So Masande may not like be explicitly like on her council, but she definitely will listen to Masande. So it's going to be really interesting to see the type of conversations they have with just the two of them. Yes, I think that'll be. Yes, uh, I think Dan, I think she'll really be like Danny's muse. It'll be really like we saw that on the show. Like they they stripped so many of other of Danny's people like they didn't there is no Makoro on the show there wasn't like Barrison was killed I mean, maybe Barrison will be killed pretty soon anyway so maybe that one's pretty accurate but regardless like Eerie and Jiki were killed like season two you know like their blood riders also ditto like they only ever gave her one and he was killed in season two also but they're, they're all still alive in the books yeah. like, fair, even her horse not very even her horse active in the books you know you're right. You're right. That's true. Like her, her two handmaidens are somewhat interchangeable as characters. Like, what's the difference between Eerie and Jiki? Like the way they I scrub her back, of course, is I don't really know. But Ric- there's sort of like Ricaro's now been sort of marked out as maybe different. Like he's like gotten his glow up, right? He's like way taller than the other two blood riders now, and and Eerie and Jiki fight over him. You know, <laughs> like this is several. This is before Danny flies off. So maybe they're doing something with him. Maybe George is giving him, you know, in, in, planning on enhancing his role because they're all really young too. Like the blood riders were like Danny's age, like they're fifteen. You know, and it's just like Barristan and Ario Hota. It's hard for them to have big diverse personalities when they were they go straight from teenagers to bodyguards, yeah. like teenagers in a warrior culture. Yeah, yeah, teenagers in a horde, a war culture yeah. of a hundred thousand, and then they they clearly stood out a little bit because they were chosen for this like pretty 
great role, you know, but, but they, they stood out for being good at fighting, which isn't like, okay, well, that's not that interesting. Yeah. You know, they've got a lot of that around, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of good fighters around this world, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, another thing about Miss Sunday is it, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't perceive her as being particularly ambitious. I think she's too young to have some like long-term goal, but I do think that what motivates her is Danny. She, much like Barristan, wants to do what she thinks Danny would do, right? And Barristan is uh, receptive to her. To be fair, Barristan might be just receptive to to most things. Like, I, he was suspicious when Garris is like, she did it for love. He's like, oh, come on. But when he tells everyone, like, don't kill the cupbearers, like, okay, we won't. And I'm like, I don't, I think they're going to kill those cupbearers. I don't know if he can trust them. Uh, I think they're going to kill him. It keeps not happening, but... Um, but I, I think that he has good reason to trust Miss Sunday, and Miss Sunday would give good would give good counsel because she's been with Danny a lot of the way, right? She's been a witness to leaders before Danny too, right? She's been present for big decision makers, courts and councils and negotiations and stuff. So she would have good insights. Maybe too good for a ten year old. I'm not sure. Maybe it. Maybe that gives her an advantage uh, that she doesn't have too many preconceived notions that, uh, for better or worse, she has a more cold view of the world and how people behave and could calculate in a way that Barrison wouldn't have seen to give him some advice on how to manage, I don't know, swords and greed and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I don't ascribe to her any negative ulterior motives. I don't either. I think that she's probably mostly driven by her need to survive her desire to continue to exist and i think that that's why to your point sean she she's more uh she's very invested in danny because i think that she feels like she can really trust her and that danny is an older person that represents access to a lot of things that can help her live a more safe life i think that safety is just something she's struggled with for a while there might be a little more nobility to it than that she might see that danny is trying to help people right in the past yeah. the leaders she's seen yeah. they're all people are just pawns their lives yeah. are worthless to them but danny seems to really care and so that may add beyond just her personal survival, which is connected to Danny, which makes a lot of sense. But there might be something sure. bigger than that. I think you're right. I think that after the the first thing is is good, after you're safe, then you can start to do your ideas. I think her idea of prote- helping protect other people in, in ways that she particularly finds bad is a, like a dual purpose win-win. And probably, again, why she's more trustworthy of, of Danny than anyone else. I think that she's going to really become someone that we – uh, like a sleeper character that came out of a an associate storyline that's going to end up being a, a pretty important person. Aren't you reading Zach? She doesn't sleep enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. I like the idea her. though of somebody being around Daenerys who actually has pure intention or who is yeah. desiring to just serve her or to be purely on her side, especially now when everybody's vying for their own personal narrative. Not that Masande isn't also like we're saying kind of in it for her own survival i like the idea that there could be some purity around danny as she navigates through especially um her rise to power in westeros especially if barrison's gonna die right if don't that you say that in there, yeah. it depends on yeah Yikes. what you mean by purity because in a way she's innocent in her her age and her youth and even her inability maybe to be particularly violent but Barristan seems pretty purely loyal to Danny, and right. so do her blood riders. Um, 
And uh, it seems like maybe a lot of the Marine people are more suspicious, but so far seem pretty loyal. Um, but it, it, you spark a thought in me that I have a lot through the series, it's, it's especially around Danny, but also John and even Cersei, all, all the, the large leader characters is what and why makes what are the effects of and why do people follow them for different reasons like just in this story but in the world too right some some people have f- followers that are loyal very loyal to the death even just because of their their position right they're on the king's guard sometimes it's because of their their familial relationship like it's their brother or their dad or something Sometimes it's because of the actual person. The actual person's fortitude and honor and integrity makes them loyal to them. And it's neat to think about the different reasons that different characters have their followers and which ones are better or worse, what a better reason to have a follower might be. Um, it, uh, we could probably just do a whole episode on that, like leaders oh, for and sure. councils. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but it's interesting to think about how most of Danny's followers – are some some combination of just because they're supposed to in the beginning, like the Blood Riders, right? They barely knew her. She wasn't even really from their culture, but like, hey, she's the Khaleesi, we're the Blood Riders, okay. And it's just their culture has got them committed to that. But over time, they've really seen her fierceness and her toughness and her ambition and her uh, care for them and so on. And so I think that they you have a combination of things that have some of Danny's leaders being fiercely loyal. Barristan's, I think, started off just because he thought he's supposed to. He's like, I'm in a king's guard. I've been following a wrong king. Let me find the right one. I, it's this Danny girl. But even then, he was like checked first. Right. He didn't reveal himself till he's sure she wasn't crazy. Right. But then once she checked out, he's like, OK, that's it. now I'm purely fiercely loyal to her. A combination of what my ostensible role was in the first place and what I've observed from her character. And I, I think she's got a lot going for her, even if there's a lot of inexperience and warrior mentality in her followers. They seem more genuinely loyal than a lot of other people like John at the Wall. Maybe has a couple people who are truly, totally loyal to him, but as a whole. But he sent them away. Uh, yeah, yeah, Sam's yeah. in Old Town. <laughs> uh, and think about all the people in King's Landing. No one's really loyal to anyone in King's Landing. No one has any uh, pure respect for their leaders. It's only from their ostensible positions or, or supposed, you know, uh, loyalties or, or out of fear. Right? So that's I forgot to mention yeah. that another overarching reason for loyalty is you're afraid that you'll be executed if you don't follow. That's all. That's mostly what Stannis has going for him, right? So, <laughs> well, it makes me think about. I mean, I think more often than not, it's probably out of people's own personal gain. You look at the tattered prince who is now potentially going to be loyal to Daenerys and her cause because he has this desire to have Pentos. And I think a lot of folks are doing this out of their own personal sellswords. Gain. I mean, Quentin was loyal <laughs> to Quentin was on his path because not because he was necessarily loyal to Daenerys, despite what he may or may not be saying, but because he was loyal to his family and mm-hmm. this upbringing that he has and this destiny that he served. And so I think that Daenerys does have a couple people that she's keeping close. And I think that's one of John's major downfalls is that he sends the few people that can actually give him some real advice or keep him grounded or uh, watch his back physically and <laughs> um, figuratively. But um, I think that it's going to be interesting to watch people like Tyrion 
and how his motivations or loyalties will play into Daenerys's um, path forward. And like we're saying, especially if Barristan doesn't make it very far, then who can become these people to kind of give her some real advice? Or like Cersei doesn't have anybody who's actually real and legit to really give her any Not even Jamie anymore, I don't think. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, not at this point. Kyburn, she gives Kyburn a lot of what he wants, so he really likes that. But he'll let her go if if his life is on the line, right? I don't think he'll oh, fight sure. to the death for her, and no, he might take a better offer no. if it came up to. I think that that's her closest one, though. Yeah, I think that Jamie would would fight to the death for her just because, but not. He would. I think he would join her cause under certain circumstances. But I don't think yeah. he would do it no matter what, like Danny's Blood Riders if, would. If she was going to die, not like, I want to join you and like help you do more dumb things. I think he'd be like, I don't want to do those dumb things. I'd yeah. rather ride around the Riverlands with Brienne and look for a maid of three and ten. We know where she is, but we're just going to go look for a while. And uh, then, then I don't know, go to King's Landing and like, get mad at people. Seems just, I don't know, just a weird place to be. She should leave King's Landing. <laughs> But she likes it too much. I get it. Semi-related kind of question as we're talking about loyalty or motivation or all of that kind of stuff. Kind of thinking a little bit about the Green Grace and maybe what their motivation or loyalty or... I don't know. I feel like we're supposed to be suspicious of Are you? them. I don't know. I, I feel like we got this interaction at the end of the chapter where... She comes back and wasn't able to convince the wasn't able to convince to get the hostages back, which seems legit. It was a bold ask, but then we get like the laying on thick of the tears and the attempt to persuade Barristan to um, let his dar out. And as we were kind of talking about this whole idea of of peace and how th- that's the pearl, or I gotta find I gotta find the the, the priceless pearl. Um, the priceless pearl. I got to find the exact quote here, but just this idea of what the Green Grace's whole deal is and what people think about her and her role and motivation. Um, curious if anybody had any thoughts or if there's anything that stood out to them with the Green Grace. Do you guys think Barristan is really in reverence like that? He is, yeah, he is in reverence and he is completely fooled. I think this is uh, just his cultural belief that older noble women are to be revered because that is kind of the way knighthood teaches. But she is absolutely 100% standing for the return of slavery. Right, of course. On this, uh, She's making the exact argument that we already refuted earlier in this podcast when she says, no, peace is the most important thing. And we've been like, mm, you got to have justice before peace. You can't have peace if it's a false peace, if it's you can't compromise with slavery, like all that stuff. She's pushing... To just tar over all these. She's problems. trying to get elected, like, nope, basically. Just, just put down your swords; it'll be fine. Saying like, whatever. Nah. <laughs> she's like saying whatever she needs to say to get elected. She's like the other guys. Yeah. Doing, I like peace right now. And then later, right. whenever yeah. she has control back, she's like, you know, we can't really be peaceful right now because these things are happening. Like she, she's part of one of like she is literally an older member of one of the most powerful families. Yeah, you know. So like, how is she? Of course, of course, she's on their side. You know. Uh, at least at least it would be hard to make the case that she's not because like what has she actually done that that indicates she's not for the status quo <laughs> you know <laughs> so i don't think there's anything we can really point to it's like this proves that she's 
you know, very high minded with her long term goals. Nah, she just she's kind of just wants slavery back. <laughs> but there's a difference between not lining up with what Danny wants and being the harpy. Right. I I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah, think, yeah. I think yeah. she is like genuinely concerned for her city and her people, even if she is, you know, uh, not very morally righteous. You know, even if she is still so ingrained in the slavery culture, I still think she's worried about the people that are going to die in war, that her family members are being held hostage, that, uh, that all this tumults and the dragons and fires and all, i think that it those might be legitimate tears you know she's genuinely worried but she's not willing to give on the issue that matters most yeah. like she doesn't yeah. re, like she's not willing to bend on the slavery issue like at all i think she's got to be safe with young kai then like like her her vision of of what works does not include compromising her position of power at all and that's a huge problem. Like she's not willing to give an inch on her own. She's like, well, we can fix all this, but I'm not going to, but my family won't lose one iota of power or wealth in that process. Incidentally, <laughs> this is something I've wondered a little bit about. What exactly is her position? There's been mention of blue graces, pink graces. She's the green grace. There was another green grace in Astapor, right? What is, mm-hmm. are they like a, like a, an order of, of, I don't know, nuns or something? What what exactly are graces? Yeah, they're like, they're definitely like a religious order. Um, so she's a high priestess, effectively. Does Maureen have a um, religion? Yes. What is it? Gracefulness? Uh, <laughs> Graceness? <laughs> I like don't know what it's called. I mean, they, it's not the, the horse lord's god or whatever, is it? I don't know. Is it just one that they have? Um, I would just imagine it's, an, it's, a, it's Gis- like a Giscari pantheon. Yeah, they have the gods of geese, but they're not named mm. at any point. But she is so. some disciple of them? Yeah, yeah, she's a high priestess, yeah. Like, they are the highest level. Like, the the green graces are the high priestesses. Like, the blue graces are healers. The red graces are, uh, well, prostitutes. Right. Uh, the white graces are t- young, really young. Like acolytes and they're, or like, something. all the graces are, but all the graces are... Uh, Part of a religious cult. It's it's like a female order. Like different no, no, jobs. they're all nobles. Oh, okay, different okay. jobs, though, right? Yeah, it's not open to lower classes. If I understand, they're like it a cult. It's like uh, like the Freemasons or something. Like they're the Eastern stars. And they yeah, all... it's kind of like that, or like the 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 mysteries of like Roman and Greek religions. But um, oh yeah, ancient ancient pantheons like that. But they uh, but they, but that's the, your clue, Sean. That they're since they're all these are all nobles. <laughs> that's what they're not yeah. like. That's where their loyalties are, and that's what like the whole point. Like the nobles control a religion, just like they do in time immemorial in all societies, because there's so much power in religion. So of course the power minded people understand that. We need to control the things that don't give too much to. credit to the noble. Sometimes the religion controls them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the case here, as evidenced by the fact that we don't even know. I mean, you're definitely right, but I don't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case here, given that this is all all their motivations seem purely, you know, about money and wealth and yeah. power. There doesn't yes. seem to be a lot of like she doesn't even bring up the names. She's at no point is she like, well, the gods, of, you know, the gods want this or the guy like, eh, it doesn't seem to really be that yeah, important. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> like the veneer of religion is really thin here in terms of like, it's just a tool, you know, like that he, even more so here than it is in Westeros. And it's not really that thick in Westeros 
Uh, although it's very much on the rise with the High Sparrow and all that. So, Oh, God, and it's the most annoying part of his whole thing because we see we can completely see through what he's doing and the fact that he's using that as a tool is just – it eats at our souls. It eats, yeah. it eats at my soul. I care less about Galaza Galare. By the way, does everyone say it like that? Galaza yeah. Galare? Galazzo, sure. Galazzo, I don't know yeah. if I've ever said it out loud I, before. So. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I like to say it to make fun of Marine. That's my go-to. I, I'm like, oh, you know, Galazzo, Galazzo. I appreciated that the, uh, <laughs> the Dornishmen were having a hard time saying, pronouncing and remembering all the different names, you know. They yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. It is It yeah. is challenging, yes. I wonder if that was something that George, I don't know if, that's, I don't know, if he recognized that he was making it tough. <laughs> a little. Oh, I'm sure. I think it was kind of meta because like, like most people probably don't remember the Westerosi names. Either. Right. Yeah. You know, like it's like too many houses. Like, which one is the, which? Like, you remember the Greyjoys and the Starks and all that, but like when it's like, well, wait, who are the Penroses yeah. again, and who are the Fell? You know, House Fell is that? The and how do you say Ironwood? Ironwood. It's just, it's just Ironwood. I think. But yeah. just another example of it's tricky to pronounce certain things. You know, we, weird spellings and yeah. stuff that I, sometimes like, okay, I guess that makes sense, but yeah, that that's part of the texture here. You know, like that's how they, that's how we get like the Miranese texture is through some of that. And we have a dual function in this chapter of doing that, like an, a last ditch remind, last minute reminder. And also of how cool Barry is because he remembers all the really complicated names of his uh, house pages and his little squires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a matter of, 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 of honor. He's like, well, like these are people that I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do them the dignity of saying their names properly. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he had a chance to do that. He's with them every day, so he's got time for it. You know, it's not like he was just given a list and told, learn these names, you know. But can you yeah, imagine? He, can you imagine a political time. leader not knowing how to pronounce the names of his? <laughs> yeah, that's that's I bad. That'll never right? happen. Yeah, so, um, but but also, but but you're right that this is built into the story. Like Tyrion, when like when young Griff is learning Giscari, Tyrion's like, this language is hard. It's like you got to have a B up your nose to pr- pr- to pronounce <laughs> it properly. And that's like like he, that's not being like uh, talking down to another culture so much as it is like it's a really hard thing to do if you didn't yeah. learn it in childhood. Yeah. yeah, right. It's not just as simple as like learning Spanish is kind of challenging for some people because of the R's and N's are different, but that's nothing compared to like some other languages where the challenges are much greater because the differences are much larger. Like romance languages, Spanish is a lot more similar to English than say learning like Russian or like Cyrillic or well, freaking Chinese yeah, or something like way different. Yeah. yeah. Like tonal languages, like you, like there aren't tone deaf people in China because you learn tones from the second you're born. It's because it's part of the language, but like in America, you people, like there's nothing there's no ba- there's no back end protection from that built into the language. <laughs> so anyway, that's pretty far afield, but it's 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 pretty it's it's pretty realistic, you know, people are like how the hell do you say this? Like it can come off like xenophobic or like almost racist, but it's there's not there's dashes it's, of that for sure. There's there's logic, but there's some real real, you know, like physical challenges in like ha- making your tongue work properly to do right. that. <laughs> well, I think that there's talking about it in a practical way and in an honest way. And then, and, yeah. and saying like, I'm genuinely confused because this, I'm not used to it. And then there's going, that's stupid. I don't think that that should be exist. That should exist. It, sh- it should be Ron Wood instead. That's way yeah. it makes way more sense. <laughs> that's when it's not cool. And George, thankfully is very cool about this kind of thing. Like he's like, you know, uh, 
say the names the way they sound in your head. It's not like they're not real names. So who yeah. cares? Like say them the way you want to say them as long as people know what you're talking about. Cause he, quite frankly, George has said his own words multiple ways. Like I've heard George say Dothraki, but he's also said Dothraki, you know, and I've heard him say both multiple times. He said Toman instead of Tom, yeah. but he's also said Tommen. Yeah. Right. So like, he said Stannis before. No, he Stannis. has like, not. He has said Stannis. That's yeah, too like, much, really. dude. Elio Garcia says Stannis, even after all these years, because it's like, mm, but it's like, no, like, stop being so stubborn. It's Stannis. <laughs> uh, our, last, our last episode, Emmett was calling Kevin Lannister Kevon. 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 Like, yes. There is in a real world, too, words that so. are like pronounced Kevon, by different, different regions or different people or different ways. It's, it's, it's part of the real world, too, for names and pronunciations. Yeah. Not always be exactly and, the same yeah. so it makes sense but. you think about the um i was thinking about a couple of chapters earlier much earlier in dance when they're all making fun of his dar's name they're like his dar yeah. whatever it is like everybody's like Has i don't know gas. how to pronounce yeah. it <laughs> so it's funny <laughs> they're all on red ralu they're always just like ralu yeah. like ralor yeah like that's it's like yeah meanwhile my phone Autocorrects to Relore because it knows it well. <laughs> Hell yeah. Been at it. <laughs> Who do you guys think the harpy is? We'll close it uh, out there. I do think it's the Green Grace. Okay. Because she's, she's, uh, there's cord, there's, there's, there's definitely coordination. It's, I don't think it could be his dar. He's too inept and not pat, strong enough, enough personality to get all these nobles to act together. Uh, and we haven't been so if it's not her there is no candidate that fits that we've seen on screen very much because no one is particularly of that ilk what about Scott so she's really the only one like she's, to me like something george is good at is giving us multiple candidates for identity like give the take the pink letter for example there's a lot of valid options there uh it's no there's a reason that mystery just keeps popping back up because there's just no there's no settling that one until we get the real answer it's just going to go on but this one like the green there's not a lot of debates about who the harpy is because there just aren't a lot of candidates you know it's like it's kind of like the three heads of the dragon like if you narrow it down like there's there's maybe four five possibilities for that third slot at most uh this i feel like there's only one or two uh so i don't know but obviously i might be wrong what do you guys think i think that there's not necessarily a harpy i think that it could be different groups that happen to have the same motivations or working with each other. Well, how do you explain their coordination then? How do you explain their, because they, because like the second the peace deal was broken, there were 28 murders that night Mm -hmm. and no one got caught. Like it was, it was like, it it was like, and and that's not the only, the only example. That's the thing that, that maybe I should have been more clear about that. There is a lot of like precise coordination with their activities, which is why I I can't, I don't, I I think that multiple organizations is a non-starter. The thing that uh, because they're saying, the similar things have happened with like gangs, just that multiple gangs the same night went out and attacked or looted or had a, you know, a shootout. The police forces, Copycat. different factions of the sheriff's department and the, the city police both show up and shoot up this house that some person, you know, do you could have different people that have that's one not, that's, leader? That's, that's, that's doing, one or two locations. We're, we're talking about multiple murders of specific targets. All within a few hour time. Right, so it could be three this isn't, different. This isn't them all showing up in one leaders place. Three different leaders could meet and say, "We're going to this place. You go to that place. We're going to cover this one." Okay, we'll meet you back tomorrow night. Well, you know? That's coordin. That's but that's you don't need one then, leader though. for that. It could be three different. Okay, but four, two, whatever. You know. But how do they like that? Doesn't really make sense though. Like it, it's possible, but like 
how are they like who's 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 telling them what to do like how are they agreeing on know. all this I don't know. <laughs> i'm not saying like, i know that's the exact like, answer i'm saying it's another possibility <laughs> that it's a, a some sort of collaborative effort between multiple people which might include his dar and or the green grace and or the shape or not the shape pay but what's the other guy the the little finger equivalent yeah you know i think any of them could be involved with it they could be feeding information to different people but like think of terrorist organizations specifically avoid being caught by not by having localized cells and not a central leader you know i'm not saying that is what it is i'm saying it could be what it is well that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a problem though like you're saying like you could definitely have that scenario where like the just the leaders meet and only the leaders of each cell know who the organizer is like that 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 can exist in any of these in, in any of these scenarios that's not eliminated by either of these possibilities but the problem is like they act quick Right. Like these are nobles. Like when you have nobles, one one really common recurring theme is that they have a real hard time agreeing and they really don't like being told what to do. They don't democratic style situations don't is like doesn't really work very well for these guys. Like this, it's kind of an anathema for them to they only work together in situations like this when they're all threatened. Even then, they still fight amongst themselves. Like, that's that happens with the free folk. That happens with everyone. So, like, it's pretty hard for me to, to, to fathom that they could coordinate so quickly, yet also, we, and not have any infighting. With, you know, so, like, it just kind of argues for someone giving orders. I don't know. Interesting. I see your point, but... I, I like both of those anyway. points because I think they both, they both have... There's truth and there's realism with... Uh, it being a, a discombobulated sort of copycat pattern that has a, a larger narrative and maybe even someone that would be a harpy capitalizing on that and making it seem bigger than it is. But there's also yeah. the or, the organization, the deadliness, and the the fact that you could just always count on it happening is definitely creepy. It's it's one thing, too, like when we went back through this on our reread, it was like a, a big point that we went to look for. Like, okay, well... Yeah. This is one of the big questions of the Miranese plot in general is who is the green grace? Like, that's a big question. So when you start the whole arc and you consider that question from the beginning, before it's even a question in the text, it comes back to the same thing. It's like there's a lot of coordination. There's a lot of organization and there's not a lot of people. There's so little unity between these families that only someone that spans it all can really work as a leader figure because they just don't like, like they just can't agree on things like that's, that comes together. Like when they're, even when they're selling Danny, the dragons, this comes up, they're just arguing over so many like little petty things. Like it's just a recurring theme that these slavers are never united on anything <laughs> unless it threatens them all, so, <laughs> which is example, the case, which is the case. Th- this, there may be an explanation for this, but the past three days there were murders. We went from three to nine to 29 or something like that right ostensibly yeah. mm-hmm. the green grace she wasn't even in town so how could she be coordinating how could she be leading the coordination of all these murders maybe she didn't even leave town why where, why do you mean what do you mean she wasn't she in was, town? She's supposed she to was be negotiating outside with the gate right right but outside the walls yeah she was there she didn't go to young right she went to the young who were outside the walls. she they're just like like you know a few hundred feet away true well, do you think she even went then? If she is the harpy, why would yeah, she? Yeah, she went. No, she went because there was witnesses to it. Okay. Like she saw the offer. Like they, she went and made the offer that she's like, they're not going to accept. They're not going to yeah, accept. Yeah, I considered that she might not and, make the offer because she didn't want it. To, but but it, but it seemed like that might come back to bite her if it was found out that she didn't make the offer. So. Right. 
But also, yeah, and if she knows that it's not going to be accepted, then there's no point in her. Why not go ahead with this thing? She knows it's not going to work anyway. Is there anyone there for her? Well, there is a reason because like like Barrison said, like the whole point was to get the sellswords thinking about money instead of – so she may perceive that. But like you say, it's still hard for her to just like work against him so blatantly when there's so many witnesses. It's like a whole – the entire sellsword company is listening. Like, yeah, you can't really keep that under wraps. Is there anyone out there for her to make a deal with? A real deal? Do they have enough organization at this point? Doesn't seem like it. Well, I, I guess I don't know what you mean, like, deal with, uh, like... With the young guy to protect herself. Mm. Give them information. Yeah, like, I think she's worried because the young, she knows what kind of people she's dealing with. They would definitely... They would they they, they want to restore slavery to the Mir- to Marine, yeah. but they don't care about the Miranese slave families. They'd be happy to take that off, take that over themselves and just give all the Miranese pyramids to their sure. to their families. I, and I guess she they're not really culturally loyal to them. <laughs> it's just about their institutions and their their wealth and power. It doesn't matter if a few people have to be sacrificed along the way. <laughs> and she can't offer them anything necessarily. Uh, she can because she can offer like, look, if if you guys you're you're aiming for all this wealth. You know, and I realize she she can probably see that she's like, well, they'll take whatever they can get here. They'll they're happy to throw us under the bus if it means that they can win. So if she's like, well, here we'll we'll give you some incentive to keep us in keep us alive or keep us in play. Yep. Make sure you restore us, and we'll make it worth your while. Because it would be easier for them to restore. Like, yes, they don't mind sacrificing the Miranese noble families, but it's the same situation you run into any culture where it's pretty hard to come in and take someone's place in their city. Yeah, it's way more right? work Even just to you, buy the company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's better to buy the companies like, look, will you give us a cut of all the, your slave earnings from here for the next 20 years? And uh, that'll be a lot easier for us than man- than running your whole city for you. But you will owe us big. Mm-hmm. Like, you owe us big for this. Like, put them, yeah, get a huge debt out of this, you know. Feels like that's what they would do because they're just such, they're so greedy. I think that they've been portrayed as just greed upon greed for generations and generations. Like, they've learned They've been greedy for so long, they've learned new ways to be greedy. Like, <laughs> that was one of the lessons of Karth, is they've been yeah. so corrupt and greedy for so long yes. that, like, this is what it looks like after thousands of years. Like, we can't even conceive of that, because, like, like America's only been around 250 years. Like, name any culture that's been around, like, a thousand years, and it, it doesn't really, that's not really a thing. It's changed so much over time. I like those thoughts. I'm thinking about what it must be like in Ashai how long it's been like that and how old some of those structures are and whether or not that area of the world was maybe settled earlier. I don't know if earlier really makes sense because it's, you know, a planet. I don't know where most of the the humans came from. I don't know enough about planetos and we have not been told enough. I I mean, I guess we could speculate, um, like stare at the map long enough and sort of guess things about it. But when I think about what they're able to do there or seemingly what they're able to do coming from a place like that, I'm like, it just seems like they've had a lot more time, kind of like you were talking about with Karth, having more time with wealth and power. And eventually they've got all of these walls and all these, they've found out all these different ways to keep themselves busy while they're inside of those walls. The the, the depth of exploration of the mind, it seems. And I don't know, for some reason, I think of of the the limits of where you can push a human being. Uh, maybe through torture or something. And we haven't specifically heard about that, but seems to be the kind of thing that happens there inside of my mind, aesthetically at least. And I wonder how old that place is and what kind of things they've been able to come up with. And like, what would we even be able to do if people like that organized in some way and weren't okay with just, uh, I don't know, like living in weird wizard towers, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like mist going across lakes. Because you think about the people that live in Westeros 
And it's just like, you're just so soft compared to the likes of someone that even follows the study of something from this place, let alone live there or grew up there. But someone like Makoro, it's like, that guy will chew you up and spit you out. Thinking about like a Tyrell <laughs> next to that guy. In my ideal world, we're all soft. <laughs> yeah, you no really need to chew up and spit anyone out. We all just like have air conditioning and ice cream, <laughs> all the and modern comforts. And, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. But what about what George has taught oh, us this through this Miranese knot, which is like there is no peace yeah. unless we all had air conditioning and kittens and if we all had <laughs> access to that at the same time well don't go on twitter because a lot of those people have ac <laughs> so i, I want to ask one one other question to you guys um we we talked about this over when when i had you guys on to talk about uh barrison one we talked about how there was such a uh a long-standing sort of hell metaphor going on in slaver's bay what with uh the extreme heat and them like literally shaping their hair into horns, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Sean, like, this is one of someone I asked to Sean as well. I want to hear you guys' takes on this as well, but since this is like newer to, to, to Sean, like, what does that do for you when you're like reading these stuff and you see that, like, it's so, di- it's different than Westeros in that in Westeros, you see like there's a lot more gray area, right? You see like no one, there's less good guys, right? There's just mm-hmm. guys. <laughs> there's like, ah, there's good and bad. But with these slavers, it's, it's not as black. It is black, more black and white, right? It, it is it's, less it's gray. It's more black and white, but it's not completely black and white. And George doesn't dip into it very much. But for example, when Danny killed all those 126 or whatever, uh, one hundred sixty-three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of them were probably like fierce, racist, adamant, mean slavers, right? But some of them might have just been a nineteen-year-old whose dad just died and didn't know what he thought about this in the first place. She just killed them all. There was no middle ground. I, I refuse to believe that all of them were equally evil. You know what I mean? That there's some of them who were terrible, awful, and some of them were naive and young and I don't think that's a point George is necessarily trying to make here, but that there is still like this, there still is some gray, less than in Westeros, but there is still some gray here that uh, even Danny, who doesn't want these fighting pits, but the fighters are like, we want the fighting pits. You can't tell us that we can't fight. You know, I mean, I mean, maybe she can or should, but they seem to think they have the right to do it. And so she compromises, I guess, if they all want to do it. But it's different if they're slaves being forced to do it than, than free individuals choosing to do it. And how much, though, were they raised as slaves to do it? And now she set them free and they're choosing to do it because that's all they can do. It's all they know. They've been gaslit into it. Is that the same? Does she need to protect them from what they... I, I don't know. Uh don't we do, don't we kind of return to that same question though that there's just no compromise with this like what do you do if they're slaver for like for setting aside the possibility that you're right about some of them being young I'm not sure that's true though because I think she killed the heads of slaver mm-hmm. families which is unlikely to be young people when they're these big powerful long running families uh, and is there any like is there any chance that they can be rehabilitated you know can they become non-slaving families is there any like is it reasonable not quickly to, that's to, the thing is it uh, like a lot of this both john and danny they're trying to do things that might eventually happen overnight 
You know, that like, even once we had the civil war in America, it's not like, there, now no one's racist anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right. Literally a hundred years later, 150 years later, you know, we, we haven't really dealt with the underlying issues of racism. And it doesn't seem, we don't get a lot of racism per se in the society. They don't seem to have like one race is the slaves and others is the nobles. Maybe that even is the case, but it doesn't seem to be presented. They that just way. enslave everyone. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I guarantee <laughs> you issues of racism will come about, right? When they let the slaves free, they're still going to like, you guys wear armbands or whatever. Like maybe you're not slaves, but you still can't walk on this sidewalk. You still can't drink this water or whatever it is. So uh, it's it's just really hard. I, I, I want to have this hope for humanity that we eventually want to be good and just, but we're stuck with leftover prejudices and institutions and such that it's just going to take some time to get over. And usually the passing of generations improves it. I, I feel confident saying that has been happening. But you, it, not the passing of one generation or two, much less one week or two months, you know what I mean? It's going to take a huge shift in the generations of Marine and Yonkai and all these surrounding people mm-hmm. and their whole economies that are built around it. It's it's just so much that it's it's hard to think. It even leads to me thinking sometimes about what a challenge George has ending this series. I can't what it's gone on for too long. Like, it seems like the end of the book is when Danny and John are 80 years old or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know (laughs) what the end point would be for any one of them, much less how to time it for all of them. So, but bringing this back to the slavery question. Now, here's the thing. Like, this is this is this is where I think it gets really interesting. I want to hear Zach and Hannah's take on this as well. Like, you have you have a situation like, well, it takes time, right? And I agree with that. But who suffers in that time is the people that have been suffering all this time. Why not put more of that suffering on the people who have been benefiting from it? Like, so I'm, my, my argument is what's wrong with killing a young head of a slaver family who maybe isn't that bad, given the alternative is that you're letting this situation that's going to take a long time to fix itself or to be fixed. It's going to take more like aggressive effort rather than passivity. You have to kill people to get this problem. Like there's no way around violence solving this problem. Like you can't, there's, there's no way that pacifism or vi- a non-violence will ever solve this problem. Do we agree on I that much? I think so. I think that it's so inevitable. So given that you have to yeah. kill people, right? Like why, like what's wrong with killing the heads of these families? Well, if you're, once you accept that violence is necessary, so then you can't really quibble with the methods. Well, here's what <laughs> might I, be wrong what I'm with saying. it is that, There is, even if it's hugely unjust and deaths might be deserved, there still is going to be this disruption to the infrastructure. We even saw another bit of gray. We saw a lot of the former slaves like, I I had a certain amount of respect. I had a job. I had a life and a role and I've lost it. And there is a system that the nobles had, even if it's purely unjust, but there was still a system they had to get food into everyone's mouth, right? They might be evil for owning these slaves, but in the end, they're still feeding them, right? So if suddenly the infrastructure, the leaders, the coordinations, the the, uh, if all that just evaporates, there's going to be, in the long run, probably better. But in the short run, there's going to be a lot of suffering. A lot of people were going to starve. A lot of people were going to steal and kill from each other. A lot of people were going to scrabble. Well, that's for the happening power anyway, vacuum. though, right? So, uh, it might happen anyway. anyway. Yeah, I don't that think there's any way. A problem yeah. with this is that you can't just kill all the leaders and well, now it's okay. fixed, you know? 
Well, I agree, but that's the point. I'm trying. That's the thing I'm trying to steer away from. I'm trying to steer away from things that will happen in either case. So that's not. A, that's not a reason not to do it if it's going to happen in either case. I'm curious to see how Daenerys handles the fallout of Marine because I think that that might also potentially change this whole conversation. Because you look at if she comes in, she's been there for a while, but we get this battle. Everyone kills everybody to kind of make this quick end to slavery. And then moves on to the next thing, leaving everything in chaos and ruin without necessarily trying to prop up a new way of life or give them another option or try to actually fix the problem than just coming in, kind of doing away with the people who've been doing it, who've been slavers their whole lives and then moving on to the next thing. I think that that is a little bit of an issue just because that's not really helping anybody other than getting rid of the people currently at the top where there's this system that's trickled into the mindset of everybody who's been living in that society. And so I think that how she deals with handling Marine and all these different places moving forward as she moves on from them, what kind of systems she puts in place or attempts to actually make real change instead of just coming in where I think that what you're saying is is true. Like you, there has to be some sort of real consequence and there has to be some sort of like, I'm all for for it, you know, but yeah. how she handles if you the fallout. Can't fix it, if you can't fix it, you have to destroy yeah. it. And I think that's why she's a dragon. Like this, this metaphor came up in the show, like be a dragon. No, you can't compromise. You can't fix. Dragons don't plant trees. That statement has been made in this, in this book. It's really important. She doesn't, she's not built for that. She's a destroyer. She's too young to be experienced in politics. Her arc is shorter than like Sean says, like how is she going to, is she going to become 80 years old? Right. No. She's going to, it's going to be, it's on the fast track and the fast track is destruction. Then it needs to and be total, build complete. on top of the ashes. It needs to be total, complete, a hundred percent destruction and not yes. half destruction because that doesn't <laughs> yes. do anything. Right. It's the same thing. You can't compromise yeah. with it. You can't fix it. You got to destroy it and rebuild on top of it. But even destroy destroying it, it rebuilding on top yeah. of it is also going to take generations, right? This can't be resolved. Yes, but that's better right. than that's better than generations right. I, of slavery. I agree. Uh, I'm I'm saying uh, at least part of what I'm saying is it. I don't see how it can happen in these books. I don't see how we can get to completion. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like another thought, which I have, makes Marine hard to, which right. makes this whole plot line for some people hard to really care about or pay attention yeah. to because yeah. we're gonna leave. Yep. And knock on wood, it'll be in the review. It's going to set up Westeros. Like yeah. what happens to Marine is going to be, I think it's going to look a lot more important in the retrospect when we realize that it's all a metaphor for sure. what happens in, or, for what happens in Westeros. Like she can't win the Game of Thrones. She can't, it's not going to work. She's just going to have to destroy things or at least get blamed for destroying things if she doesn't actually cause it directly. You know, this is something <laughs> we've talked about a lot in political discussions, the idea that there is an ideal, like a theoretical ideal and then there is also yeah. – and, and so there are certain actions you might want to take to, to, to move toward that, certain things you think should be a law or whatever to make it be the ideal. But then there is the reality of how we have things right now. And sometimes given how things are mm. right now, some things to make that better are different than moving toward the ideal. Does that make sense? And, uh, and yeah, the like, ideal, like a step back to things. take a step, two but steps forward. But in this scenario, Marine, maybe yeah. you have to. You know? Yeah, you can't have the ideals. Yeah, sometimes, yeah the ideals usually aren't – available to yeah. us <laughs> yeah uh like you do that when you can like it's it's kind of like what ned stark with ned stark was trying to uphold up mm -hmm. uphold ideals and he got killed like it didn't work because the people they played dirty john was you know, also trying to uphold ideals yeah. 
Yeah, and it, he just wasn't acknowledging how dirty his opponents were. Maybe he could uphold ideals, but you have to play the game. Be more you know aware. What? I'm going to go off of your opponents. Clark. Won't. <laughs> <laughs> wait till we're done. Okay, wait. Hold on. Step one, Sean. Don't tell people oh. you're going to rob. <laughs> okay. You see, you're not built to be a criminal. Apparently. <laughs> what a I'm going to be a double agent. I'm going to tell everyone. I'm going to play both sides. <laughs> Fire and blood, baby. See, that's how you know you can trust Sean. See, he just he when he starts to turn to criminal, a criminal he just, you. He just you know. <laughs> that's how you know Sean's a good man. <laughs> it was the Iron Bank I'm at. The Iron Bank. I'm gonna go rob the Iron mm-hmm. Bank. <laughs> <laughs> now that sounds very dangerous. <laughs> I wonder what kind of guards they have there. Iron guards. <laughs> they're they're guarded by their reputation. Like, do not mess with them. Right. They don't even have guards. <laughs> it's un, it's unblocked. You guys, uh, that was really that was really impassioned. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. Real world stuff comes up here. That's like, why it's good. It's the extremes. That's why it's good because he 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 made it like this. He made it um, reflect. It has like it it doesn't bore you because it doesn't have the automatic effects of like a magician coming in and casting a spell and winning the whole situation like it it, yeah it has worked itself out over the years to become this balanced and it's going to continue to be balanced the fight is balanced the battle of fire as we've all looked at it even with uh vic coming in with the ship like it's still there's so much Mm -hmm. imbalance to it even with the dragons flying overhead and that's really cool that all these moving parts from seemingly at the beginning of the chessboard can make it all the way here and still be balanced. Um, what, what I'll say about uh, the the fix to the solution, I think that it's hard to say for sure what the the real fix is for everything um, for me. But the the quickest way seems to be fire and blood. That's definitely the quickest way. But there's there's still the scenario where you're, you're putting another life form through something that's really going to hurt. Like I don't know if there's a very humane way to kill people in uh, Planetos yet, but uh, the way that the, nailing them to a sign is definitely not humane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she didn't have to do the suffer. I, like that's a good like that's a good way to like to look at that debate a little differently. It's like, well, maybe even if you argue that they just, that killing them was okay yeah. or fair, did did they have to be made to suffer yeah. like that? That's maybe like, uh, I would say, yeah, that probably wasn't. And look at Quentin. Maybe, maybe it was, though. Yeah, dude, I don't know, like, man. What happens to <laughs> You're hardcore, and yeah. I appreciate that, but fuck <laughs> nailing. But it's just, it goes to show how different, like, the scenario is, like, we in the real world just, we can't, like, it's hard to imagine, like, we can't put ourselves in place. Totally. Like, should I just kill 163 people? Elements. Should I torture 163 people? People, oh, I don't know. Do both. <laughs> Let me get my counsel together. In that sense, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like in, in our world, mur- killing a baby would never save ten thousand other ba- children. But in their world, it actually is like that yeah. is science. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like oh, I'm glad we don't have yeah. that kind of science in our world. Jeez. <laughs> but as we've seen with uh, Quentin's death, fire is a shitty way to die too. Really shitty. Oh God, yeah. So. We'll uh, we'll see how it works out with with Danny. I'm I think that out of all the people that we've talked about, even compared to someone like John, who also seems to be somewhat selfless in whatever way you want to stretch that, I think that her unique set of what she's gone through is putting her in the position to, uh, I think, make the best kind of lasting change. And I think that that we were talking that's basically been a lot of the point of what we've been saying about her in this episode. And I think that that's the reason why she has so many people that are obsessed about her on the internet and in real life. But in, the internet seems like the only place these things happen because 
Apart from like uh, TV show merch that says Mother of Dragons, of which I do have a shirt that says that, um, they people don't really talk to me about Danny. But on the internet, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> different, they have different photographs of her from the show, photoshopped with different colors, like little gifts of three seconds of her mouth moving a certain way. They're like, see how wonderful she is? I'm like, I don't know if that's what you're feeling necessarily. You are feeling something, but I don't know if it's about her leadership. There has never been a character like her. You know, they're really uh, like, uh, it's easy to say something, make a statement like that, what I just said. Be like, there's never right. been. Because I mean, you, know, you can say ease. that about a lot of characters. But like, she just really is different. I mean, like, in terms of like defying tropes, yet playing to them at the same mm. time, like being such a big character like all these things we talked about all this barristan quentin everything it's all her story like it all it's like she's at the top of that pyramid you know (laughs) oh she set all this up right yeah it's all like kind of coming back around to her it's so it's it's great she's such an interesting all-consuming creation of a character (laughs) shall we do owns everybody Well, well i'll just pivot to that i'll say own to daenerys for being such a huge boss of everything <laughs> driving the story so much i give my <laughs> own to strong bell west for just devouring poison <laughs> <laughs> and being cool with it <laughs> and it just wants revenge like, like someone's gonna die now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey poison food the only solution is eat more other food <laughs> right bulk back up yeah that is smart wow my owns are a little bit more serious than that so i feel like i can't follow up (laughs) hey that was (laughs) i'll throw one one more in then uh just to to give you a little more setup i'll ramp you up a little more here also own to the green grace for getting me and sean to argue (laughs) (laughs) that was a great that got a little heated i loved it yeah like well you know it's like our our own personal biases about how power structures in the world works comes a hundred percent yeah. 100%. So, so yes. Uh, so, yes. Fire. Hopefully our passion was we'll just that passionate later. and not like. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if Sean and I still lived in the same house, we'd been like, you know, been like. Fist Your antlers like, would be no, clacking right, right after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, we love each other. <laughs> um, I've got two owns and I'm going to do both of them really quick. The first is Barrison is thinking about when the fight actually starts breaking out whether or not the dragons are going to come and he kind of thinks to himself if the dragons will know one side from the other which i think is a very cool we had we didn't talk specifically about the battle in this podcast i know all of us have kind of talked about it in other various channels but the idea of the dragons just arriving with no sense of loyalty to one side or the other is very exciting to me yeah, even among the um, soldiers themselves, they might have a hard time knowing who's what side they're on, especially as they're turning exactly. sides, you know? <laughs> like the exactly. dragons don't even have And any with all the sounds of, yeah, and the horns and the yeah. yeah. Pure chaos. Um my other own is gonna be to Barrison again when he's thinking about how he says he had spent so he's talking to um Garrison Archibald and and kind of they're saying, well, we're loyal to Quentin. And he thinks to himself he had spent the best part or better part of his own life obeying the commands of drunkards and madmen as he's reaching presumably nearer to the end of his life and story arc, kind of reflecting back on his own time and all the people he served under. I thought that, that was a nice little reflection of the drunkards and madmen that he too has been loyal to in his day. So nice. Well said. Owns to that. 
Zach, it's all you. I give my own to Skaha's trying to be aggressive and make a an impact at their roundtable meeting, slamming his fist on the table and being like, you would break King Hizar's peace, old man. Those are two different moments, but I'm putting them together to make my own a little bit better because you three had such good ones. You would break King Hizar's peace, old man. And Barristan says, I would shatter it. Boom. Go off, Barristan the Bold. Yeah, own to Barristan for still being bold. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have two owns coming in today. Um, One of them is from Instagram, whose username... I believe spells out Irish Mexican Viking who says right own to bury the bold <laughs> for always remaining cool, calm and collected, even when there are plagued ridden corpses being lobbed into the city. And from Twitter, our favorite teen heartthrob Dario Naharis writes and just gives simply an own to Barristan Selmy. Thank you, Dario, for your own. Just for being just very, for making an I mean, effort to come save him, you better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no <laughs> and if you want to send in your owns, if you have other thoughts or feelings, etc., that you want to share with us, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, on OnlyFans, on Instagram, on Facebook by searching for Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Zach and Hannah from the future, (laughs) cutting in with some extra owns that we did not want to miss out on. (laughs) Aziz and Sean, sorry you're missing this part, but we got to do what we got to do. Our first own that we missed was from Twitter, at Straight Savage Cole. Straight Savage Cole. Once again, I was so happy to have a POV chapter with Barristan the Bold. My own is quite simple and was something that reminded me of home, Westeros. And that was the mentioning of the White Book and its reference of other Kingsguard who had served the hand before him. I'd be remiss if I didn't state I'm pulling for Sir Barristan, though he reminds me of Ned as hand. Why does everyone think he's going to die? Because <laughs> he's probably going to. He's old. It's true. He is. If he didn't die that way, he's probably right. trying to die. Because <laughs> we both right. know he doesn't want to die in his sleep. That's why he doesn't like to sleep. No disrespect, but... He's going to go. They were both skillful warriors, though their moral nobility is their weakness. And and as we saw in Ned's case, his demise. I have an eerie feeling the same may be said for Barristan. Amen to that. It's also because he's so reminiscent. Sorry. You want to just do a new new episode. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) I'm just saying, Barristan's like always thinking in the past. Like that's got to lead to... To something death sure yeah it's like <laughs> at the end of his life he's thinking back right we probably already talked about that what if so. instead of that george just let him keep living and the whole time he's in the story he's just constantly making it seem like he's about to die in the next scene because he's having all these last moments i mean that would be what is it he's always george r, r. martin is like always trying to change those classic fantasy tropes yes yeah, really smashing the trope that's what turning I was thinking. it's on its head mm-hmm. yeah Next, we've got from Instagram, Allie Levine, who says, My own of the chapter has to go to Sunday. You might think it's because she so tenderly cares for a dying stranger, which is partly true. You might think it's because she's a clever little minx and came up with the ploy to rescue the hostages, and that's also partly true. At one point in the chapter, Barrison said she is, quote, as clever 
as half the man at the men at the table and wiser than all of them. And that is why my own goes to Miss Sunday. George is putting it out there for us plain and clear. She is no ordinary woman. She is too clever. She is too wise. And she ain't an innocent young scribe from Noth, the peace-loving folk. She's sus. I'm not sure what she is, be it a faceless man, a child of the forest, a secret Targaryen, Euron, or your mom. <laughs> but it seems <laughs> at least she is a force for good. She has essentially unrestricted access to one of, if not the most important person in the known universe, and this chapter got me amped to see her future role. If her role was to simply be an advisor and friend to Daenerys, she could have been any age, but there's a reason she seems so innocent and young, but is constantly in the background pulling strings. Barristan at one point likens her to Littlefinger, which is a blood-red flag. Shout out to the one and only Strong Belwas. Someone please get him some liver and onions. Thanks, Allie. Thank you. All right. You want to talk after that one? I feel like Allie laid it all out. What else do I have to say? (laughs) On Twitter, Mike McCann says, Oh, shit me. Somehow I have missed this. Probably missed it by now. Been working like crazy recently. Eight days in a row. 12-hour days minimum. We'll 100% make sure I'm there for the finale. One more chapter left. Much love, guys. Sorry I couldn't make it. Much love to you, Mike, and as a treat to everyone at home, Mike actually did come through, and he did not wait for the finale. So here's an own from Michael McCann sent to us via email, attacking us on both sides, Mike. I like it. I know I'm too late, but fuck it. Got a little bit of downtime in between shifts, so here we go. Feel like we say this every time, but Barry is bestie, and every chapter makes a case for his being best. The only thing that I think this one loses out on compared to the last is an epic battle, but it more than makes up for it, and it's engrossing almost TV-like, episode-like scenes. I added an extra like, sorry, Mike. Shout out particular to the descriptions in this chapter. This is peak George, and the way he brings us into the universe with him is stunning as ever. I'd like to highlight a particular part. He took his last shuddering breath in the bleak black dawn as cold rain hissed from a dark sky to turn the brick streets of the old city into rivers. The rain had drowned the worst of the fires, but whiffs of smoke still rose from the smoldering ruin that had been the Pyramid of Hazkar and the Great Black Pyramid of Yazir and the Great Black Pyramid of Hurazan, where Rhaegal had made his lair, hulked in the gloom like a fat woman bedecked with glowing orange jewels. I wanted to say that, I put that in my notes, but I totally forgot in this recording. You can edit it back in. This is what we're doing right now. Can you believe that he went there? <laughs> also, it's pretty wild. It is pretty wild, but if it's hulking in the gloom, he knows what's up. Like, wow, everything's perfect down to the small details. The cold rain hissing tells so little, but yet paints a picture in your mind. It doesn't get better than this. Barry is, of course, his general badass self here, often debating with himself mostly. I'm reminded of John almost here. This is what John wants to be, but he never quite gets there. My own goes to Barry the Badass for leaving everyone speechless with his strategy. They call him Barry the Bold, after all. Your gods are far away, Sir Grandfather, said the widower. Said the widower. I do not think they hear your prayers. And when the young Kai send back the old woman to spit in your eye, what then? Fire and blood, said Barristan Selmy, softly. Softly. For a long moment, no one spoke. Then Strong Bellwest slapped his belly and said, Better than liver and onions. And Skaha Shavepate stared through the eyes of his wolf's head mask and said, You would break the king Hizdar's peace, old man? I would shatter it. Like, holy shit. How cool is he? I'm in awe. Sunglasses emoji. P.S. 
This is for everyone who subscribes to our Patreon to know about this conversation, but let's let you in on it. I've attached those six packs of two liters we sell for proof. Now that the Euros have kicked off, you'll never see beer fly out so fast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All the best. I'll do my best on the next time. Thank you, Mike. And for everyone wondering, it's a picture of of a six-pack of two-liter of um, alcoholic cider. A six-pack of two liters. I, that might be normal to a lot of you, but that was something that I'd never heard of in my life. Google it. It's real. What do you think, Hannah? Owns? I think they were great. I think Mike got his in under the wire. Goodbye. And now back to the episode. Everyone that is listening to this podcast has been listening to the smooth and sultry sounds of Aziz and Sean from History of Westeros. I've had the pleasure of being friends with you guys for years now. I love the both of you. I love seeing your faces on Zoom. That is an upgrade to most of our podcasting practices. Thank you for that, COVID, because previously we would just do Skype. And obviously it was better to, to do it at your house whenever we had the chance to do that when the whole gang was together. But this isn't so bad. I'm able to, like, stare at you when we do this. And we've been doing uh, these in person for the past handful of uh, months or most of them. But this has been a this has been a fun change and a really fun recording. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this Saturday afternoon and reading the chapter again and telling us about what your 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 feelings are about killing people, whether or not they should be killed quickly, slowly, or at all if they do bad things. Thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. This is a really good chapter. It really uh, sparked a lot of um, related discussions that went a lot of fun places. Got. Uh, some new ideas and uh yeah it was ditto hanging out with friends man good call on that that's uh yep we haven't gotten to all hang out at a convention or anything Way like that too in a while long. but we got dragon con this year maybe soon yeah not too are long, you gonna come you know? in town for that sean i'm not sure i i think so but i i just can't say for sure right now right on well i hope i hope we get to see you do you guys want to plug where people can find you yeah, good idea. Um, we are over at History of Westeros. It's uh, on. You can find us on all podcatchers that you might use, as well as on YouTube. And it's Westeros History on Twitter. And uh, that's there's uh, Sean has a few other things you can shout. Yeah, out follow to. me, Dancing Sean, on Twitter, and I also have a YouTube channel where I've been covering different things. I did the boys TV show was pretty awesome. And I started doing one minute previews of different movies. I did all the Academy Award nominees from this past year and I'm doing a few others. Uh, just the, the idea is to give you like a, a sampling of what a movie is without really spoiling it. You know, what's the genre, who directed it, what kind of tone it has, what audience it's for and so on. They're really good. Like you said, they're only a minute long. And I'm a person that doesn't pay a lot of attention to what movies are. Like what, like movie, like I don't watch a lot of TV. So I don't, like I do watch TV, but not TV that has commercials. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what movies are out, let alone what the Emmy Awards, I mean, the, the Academy Awards are for. So when Sean goes through them, it's like one minute, like he, he runs down the plot. And I'm like, oh, okay. And there was like two or three of them. I'm like, eh, I'm not interested in that. But two or three others, I'm like, oh, you know, I should really check that no out. No spoilers. No, 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 yeah, no spoiler. Just he just give you some idea. Like he'll name like other movies directed by this person or, or written by just other or other or movies actors. that like, are just, similar. Yeah, just you know, have the same. It's, it's you know context or or style or whatever you know. And I think there's frankly more room for this than other people have maybe have realized because there's a lot of freaking spoilers and trailers mm -hmm. these Dude, days. Dude, I can't too. even watch them. Yeah, a lot of times they're pretty much just <laughs> so, yeah. a summary of the mover movie, not a preview yeah. for it. So yeah. 
Like that's like a thinking now. Like I've read that that's like some studio execs. They like they especially where some types, some certain classes of movie, they intentionally tell you what it's going to all be about because people want to know what the whole thing is before hmm. they go in. Which to me is like Strange. I wouldn't want that, yeah. but some people really want that. I think it's for a lot of family films they mm. want that because like they want to know like what their yeah. kids are getting. That makes like, sense. You know? And sometimes that's big action a, movies yeah. are family events too. So yeah. Yeah, so that, that that kind of I can kind of understand. Yeah, but I try to. Uh, for example, I don't know if I were gonna do Die Hard, I would say it's action adventure, kind of kind of an everyday Joe cop caught up in this uh, terrorist moment, and uh, it's you know I, that would be the extent of what I said about the plot. You know, I would I might it's a classic. Some people call it a Christmas movie because it took place in Christmas. <laughs> I would I would speak around the movie <laughs> just to give you an idea. You know, it stars Bruce Willis or, you know, things like that to give you an idea what this type of thing is going to be, but not get into the details of what the plot is. So that's cool. Very cool. Yeah. What's next on History of Westeros? We are now actually this is great timing that you asked <laughs> this. We have uh, our Winds of Winter wrap up will be this Sunday. So it'll happen before this episode is probably published. And then we have one episode on Lost Valyrian Steel uh, items. And then we're going into Dunkin' Egg, and Sean, it'll be Sean's return to the pod. He's been away for a while. So we're doing all the, the three three Dunkin' Egg stories. It'll take us, you know, once every Sunday. Uh, our live streams, we'll just go through them as long as it takes to get through the three stories. So that is uh, pretty cool. Awesome. We're getting back to that, and we've never directly covered Dunkin' Egg. We've obviously used them as sources for a lot of our historical topics, but we haven't ever done it directly. So that should be a lot of fun for us and for listeners. And, uh, yeah, so we look forward to that. And it's just starting in two weeks. Great. Yeah. So are you guys in the camp where you don't think George is ever going to finish the books? I really have no idea. <laughs> That's it's kind of one of those things that you just can't predict. Like, you know, I don't I, I'm a I know some people like the way they your brain works, you you kind of have to decide one way or the other to be to have a little more comfort. You know, to me, I don't care. Like, I don't I don't need to decide because it's just something if it, you know what happens, happens like we have no control over it. We have no say in it. We have no idea. It's just something in the future that will or will not happen. I, I you know, it's just and, to, and but I also realize that's just how I deal with it. This, the, my answer is is my personal emotional way of dealing with this unknown. So I definitely won't deride anyone else's coping mechanisms, whatever they may be, or if you want to call it that or not. So yeah, my, <laughs> I, my thought is that. I don't think that he writes like one chapter, then he writes the next chapter, then he writes the next chapter, and he needs to write 48 chapters. Right now he's on 44, so he's not done yet. I think that he's created this whole landscape of story that's sprawling out all over the place. I think right now, in a certain way, he's probably more than half done with the next, next book. Does that make sense? And he's still just like tying things together deciding how he wants to word certain things, making sure timelines line up, uh, looking for bits of symbolism to include. He probably doesn't have the exact endings for every character put out yet, but I think that if, you know, God forbid, he died of a heart attack tomorrow, I don't think that'd be like, well, there's just no books now. That I think that he has a huge amount of material that's probably more than a book's worth that he just doesn't have perfectly pieced together yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe like if an artist like sketched something out and was working on painting it and then died. It's not like we have nothing. It's almost done. You can see where it was going. There'll be a lot of material. They'll release what they have. You can piece together some of it. It'll, it'll spin off 
just as much speculation and podcasting and uh, heated discussion as completed books will. So I, I don't fret over it too much. I, I, I think it's legit to be worried that he doesn't, but I'm not that worried because I don't think it matters as much if he does, because I think all the material that he has hashed out will fill what we're looking for, mostly, hopefully. <laughs> I like really, really like getting the perspective from such diehard fans, people that create content and have created content for years on the internet about a specific story. It's interesting to get their opinion about how that's going to go. It's crazy that we're even in the scenario where some people just don't think it's going to get written. I I personally do. I just, it's just how I feel. I don't know. I mean, I I just, I know it's taken a long time. We've talked about this before, but I still expect there to be books. I, I think he plans on finishing yeah, yeah, the books. Take your time, I say. Yeah, as long as he waited until we were done with Feast with Dragons, which is our next episode. It's the last <laughs> yeah. of our reading order. So he's good. Yeah. I'm ready after in two weeks' time. So Yeah, in two weeks, if he decides to release it, I won't be mad fine. about that. Yeah, yeah totally fine. <laughs> I don't know. He can give me three weeks. <laughs> three weeks. Wanna wait till you guys get done yeah, with Duncan exactly, Egg first? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even three months. Yeah. Go to Says the, the internet, guy who look hasn't up. been waiting more than three days. Sure. <laughs> Go to the internet, look up History of Westeros. Go to your podcast apps, look it up. Go to a feast with dragons dot yes, com. And if you want to follow yes, along do. with our reading order, like I said, we've got our very last chapter in our reading order is coming up in the next episode. So Looking forward to wrapping it all up. Thanks for being here with us, everyone. Thank you, too, again, for joining us on the show. Thanks, Hannah, for thank, joining thank me. Thank you. It's been great. I've got all these <laughs> thoughts bubbling up since I finished the last book, so it's good to spew <laughs> them out. And congrats on, uh, you know, not being almost done. It's been a long, long, yeah. what a long, strange it really trip been. it's been. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for continuing to listen, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Yeah. Winter is coming. Oh, that's memorable.